Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960, the fan is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Happy Tuesday. We're underway on another gorgeous day in the city of Calgary. We've got Logan Gordon, who is at our Sportsnet 960 World Control and the Basement Systems Downtown Studio. Pinder's at Shea Pinder. I'm here at uh, Shea Steinberg on another gorgeous day and excited for the uh, the program ahead. Got a good show for you. Chris Johnston going to join us in about 25 minutes, our NHL insider. Former Flame Jordan Leopold going to take us on a trip down memory lane from the 2004 Stanley Cup Final. Jordan Leopold was a huge, huge part of that. He's going to join us at 3 o'clock. And then some CFL draft talk at 3.30 with a potential new member of the Calgary Stampeders. Remember the uh, Alex Singleton story from a number of years ago when Alex Singleton was this pretty unknown player who was drafted by the Stampeders, I believe, number six overall, and we didn't even know that he was really eligible for the CFL draft. Next thing you know, as an American with a Canadian mother, he's playing as a national in the CFL and becomes one of the best linebackers in the league and then off to the NFL. Well, Jordan Williams, a very similar story. The East Carolina linebacker going to join us at 3.30 and then at 4 o'clock. It's our 1997 NHL redraft, which I think is going to be a lot of fun, gentlemen. We'll do that at 4 o'clock. But right now, uh, Mr. Pender, how are you? How are things on this Tuesday afternoon? Good, man. This is uh, the weather's been awesome. I've already uh, taken the little weasels for a bike ride and ran 5K and played soccer in the yard and done some sidewalk chalk. This is uh, the pandemic dream, my friend. What time do you get up? Like, what is regular pandemic wake up time? Well, that's different. I texted my sister at 6:45 this morning, but. Uh, Went right back to bed, so usually pretty late. We're keeping the boys up late watching movies. We're watching Ozark, so it can be anywhere between seven and nine. Yeah, which is, yeah, you know, me too. Later it's than normal. Same time I'm getting up these days between seven and nine for sure. Very similar. No, I haven't not, woken nope. up. I haven't woken up after uh, before nine o'clock um, in quite some time. I guess I did for the hit with Boomer. Um, I was going to say, did you stay week. up for the 6.45 in the morning or did you? No, yeah. I went to bed, set an alarm for 6.30, then went back to bed. That was uh, the, the situation there. But, no, I, I think that our uh, wake-up oh. times are a wee bit different. Um, but that's okay. You know, you've got kids and, you know, important responsibilities. And, well, I do not. Um, welcome to the program. Pinder and Steinberg is underway. I've really enjoyed doing this to kick off the program. Logan's been doing a great job putting together are this date in Flames history feature pieces and an opportunity to take a look at some of the other um, other big moments that have happened on each and every day in Calgary Flames history. This is an interesting one that Logo chose today. Um, as we take you back in Flames history, let's first check in with Logo and some other big moments on this April 21st. Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames history starts, starts now. On April 21st, 2007, Jamie McLennan would lose his cool against the Detroit Red Wings. He came in relief of Mika Kiprasov at the end of a 5-1 Game 5 loss to Detroit. McLennan was already set to take a two-minute slashing penalty for a slash on Johan Franzen of the Red Wings. 
But McLennan decided to get his money's worth, slashing friends and in the stomach after play was called. McLennan was suspended five games for the slash, a suspension he would never serve as those were his last moments with the Flames and in the NHL. McLennan's going to get a penalty here, slashing Johan Franzen. Not very smart by Jamie McLennan. Again, obviously, the frustration is, oh, my God. Oh, oh what is he doing? Oh, my God. Well, that was just an Oh, no, what is he doing? That sets him aside. throw him right out. That's it. Oh, Kippersoff will be back in. Yeah, and they don't have a backup point. They're going to have to get a back. He's going to get suspended for that. That's insane. Crazy. Well, even though it seemed like a good choice at the time, it was a terrible move. Yeah. No, that's terrible. That's so out of character for him. That is bizarre. Unacceptable, Pierre. It doesn't matter if it's out of character. Unacceptable. Oh, I agree. This, this is reprehensible. This is terrible. Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Like that's noodles. That's the guy that's that's on on TSN. That's like the one of the most affable, friendliest human beings of all time, and he went straight like movie fight scene where he gets somebody in the stomach with his stick, like right to the midsection of Franz in a two hander with his goalie stick, and he never served the suspension. Talk about talk about getting away with. Almost murder. Uh, the guy does that, uh, leaves the ice, never plays another NHL game, never serves Oof. his five-game suspension for going right to the gut of Johan Franzen. 5-1 and frustrated. I just uh, pulled it up because to hear it is one thing, to see it's another. It's amazing. And, uh, yeah, why serve that? Yeah, I'm good. I'm going to start another career now. <laughs> no, I get it. I mean that that vintage of Red Wings, the that was um, an elite Red Wings team, but they had two players that were infuriating. If you were a fan of another team or a goalie on another team, one of them was Franzen, and the other one was Tomas Holmstrom. Those two guys mm-hmm. made an absolute career of making life difficult for opposing goalies straddling the line of what's allowed and what's not allowed and sometimes going over specifically in the playoffs. Uh, so I get it why a goalie would be frustrated. Um, but, uh, you know, Jamie McLennan probably went uh, a little overboard on this date in 2007. That's uh, he got his money's worth there. That's a quality whack. Holy jeez. And then well, the I'm, penalty leading up to it. I mean, this is. <laughs> I'm just watching it on YouTube. This is good stuff here. The audio is good, but to, to see it is, yeah, that's uh, that's not allowed in this sport. Sorry, friend. No. Uh, so Jamie McLennan finished his NHL career as a felon. Um, he was suspended for <laughs> that slash to the midsection of Johan Franz. And a couple of uh, other interesting notes, number of other interesting notes on this date in uh, – Flames history. It's April 21st. Uh, I'll take you back almost 20 years uh, to 1993 as the Flames are looking to tie up a Smythe division at semi with the LA Kings. Calgary dropped game one, 6-3 at the Saddledome. Then we're down in the second game, uh, one nothing to the Kings, but they would erupt in that game. Uh, 
five goals in the second period for the Flames en route to a 9-4 win. Joel Otto led the way with a couple of goals and 109 penalty minutes in the game. 51 of them were handed out in the final 43 seconds as things got a little chippy on this date in 1993. Mm. Flames would tie their series with the LA Kings at one game apiece. Yeah, it's uh, it's the wrong year to be telling. I'm like, oh, I wonder how that. No, we know how that went. 93. Okay, another first round exit. There you go. <laughs> sure is. Flames would lose in six Long games line of to the LA not getting Kings through the first round. Uh, those were uh, that was the year the Kings went all the way to the Stanley Cup final. They would take out Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, and then eventually fall to Montreal in the Stanley Cup final in 1993. On this date in uh, 1996, a pretty significant date in Calgary Flames history, a debut that would start perhaps the greatest career in Calgary Flames history, Ooh. and that career would start with an assist. Patrick catching up. Wheeling around T-Top, and Bell Four kicked that away. Aginla, he's bumped by Craven. Shot in, Aginla, rebound, scores! Flurry! Now, this was game three of a first-round series with the Chicago Blackhawks, and the Flames were down uh, 2-0 in the series, and Jerome Aginla would step in in game three. The Blackhawks would win the game in Calgary, but 18-year-old Jerome Aginla assists on that goal from Theron Fleury with a point in his first-ever NHL game. His first-ever NHL game was a playoff game, and the Flames would fall that night by a 5-2 score, but uh, Jerome Aginla would make his NHL debut on this date april 21st 1996 he'd actually played two playoff games get a point in both of them an assist then a goal pretty good way to start what i think we all would agree would be the the greatest career in calgary flames history hall of fame career to be sure at some point here soon uh potentially soon as what this next class coming up mm-hmm. uh so yeah I, I remember that series that was the last time they made the playoffs prior to 04 which was a long old drought, 96 to 04. Uh, and well, I'm sure we'll hear about it in a couple of days, but uh, he didn't slow down despite the Flames uh, getting swept in that series. He continued his uh, point-per-game pace in the NHL. And uh, Trent Yanni at about uh, one local time in the morning, or well past midnight if I'm correct, with an idiotic coughing it up in front of his own net and double or triple overtime. Thanks, Trent. Uh, and I was wrong. The Flames didn't lose that game 5-2. That made the score 5-2, the goal that was scored. They actually lost the game by a 7-5 score. Flames were down 5 nothing right. to the Blackhawks in game three. Uh, Theron Fleury would score two to make it 5-2. Then Chason and Stillman would get the Flames back within one in the third period. It was 5-4 with 14 minutes to go. Uh, but the Hawks got goals from Joe Murphy and Eric Daze to make it 7-4. And they'd go on to a 7-5 win. Theo Fleury did his best two goals um, and an assist and uh, the Flames would fall down 3-0 in that series on this date in 1996 but yeah Jerome Aginla made his debut on this day to think about it like at that time as as a fan of the Calgary Flames you were kind of resigned to them going out in the first round by this time 
Um, they hadn't won a playoff series since 1989, and now here we are in the mid-1990s, and they're making the playoffs, but they're always going out in the first round. But this Jerome McGinley guy who came over a few months prior in the Joe Newendike trade, you're like, what is this guy all about? And then he comes out and gets two points in two games in his NHL playoff debut. Like that, that was a pretty exciting time if you're a member of the Calgary Flames or a fan of the Calgary Flames because here's this guy that was supposed to carry on the lineage of one of the greats in Joe Newendike and gets off to a pretty good start. Yeah, it was not really much in the way of playoff success for almost a decade, but it was exciting to see the return actually be a tangible you know, player that would not only be a good one, but a superstar in the league. So, uh, you know, a lot, they, a lot of players left Calgary from that great young core that they had in the late eighties, early nineties. And, and very few returned anything close to the hall that, that uh, again, proved to be for Joe Newendike. Okay. Let's skip ahead a decade, 2006. Now on April 21st, flames playing their first playoff game since the 2004 stanley cup finals first playoff game since game seven against the tampa bay lightning the flames after the lockout canceled season come back they win the northwest division and they are viewed as one of the elite teams in the western conference heading into game one of their first round series with the anaheim ducks at the scotiabank saddle dome or at the time the uh, pengrove saddle dome and uh, the flames and ducks go to overtime uh Tony Tony Amante uh, opened the scoring for the Flames. Jeff Friesen tied it for the Ducks. Game one, Flames-Ducks, overtime at the Dome. Pretty unlikely hero in game one. Broken up and fired back in by Calgary. Now Lanko with a shot. Doesn't get to the net. It hit O'Donnell. Lanko goes to the front of the net. So does McCarty scores! Darren McCarty, the overtime winner, about midway through overtime. Remember that year, Amante played a year with the Flames. McCarty was a member of the Flames. Like that was a that was a big year in Calgary. They win the Northwest Division, and and I know that the series against the Ducks did not go according to plan as they go out in seven games. But uh, Darren McCarty, one of his two seasons as a member of the Calgary Flames, hmm. uh, he had two playoff goals against the Anaheim Ducks, including that one, an OT winner in Game One. How do we look back on the decision to bring in Darren McCarty? I feel like uh, that's a very mixed bag. Maybe even uh, less than that. Okay for what it was. I mean, he didn't put up a lot of points. Um, he played, what, 99 games as a member of the Calgary Flames with 13 points. Like, it wasn't it wasn't uh, overwhelming success, but he did, like, he was brought in to add a little toughness to the conversation. Um, so... Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say that it was a resounding success, but I don't know if you would call it a an abject failure either. Okay, well, there you have it. What you, uh, would you whisper in my ear there, uh, Logo? Oh, what's up, Logo? You got uh, some breaking news? Yeah, we got some news from the NFL, gentlemen. Uh, Pat, you had talked about the rumors earlier in our group chat off the air. Adam Schefter of ESPN has it. Pending a physical, the Patriots are trading Rob Gronkowski <laughs> and a seventh-round pick to the Bucks in exchange for a fourth-rounder. Woo! Fourth Can you say rounder. that one more time oh, without me cackling hysterically in the background? Can Absolutely. You, uh, so let's just... The rumors have been coming out today that Rob Gronkowski had requested a trade from uh, New England <laughs> to play back with Tampa Bay and Tom Brady. 
Uh, Adam Schefter of ESPN now has it official pending a physical. The Patriots are trading Rob Gronkowski and a seventh-round draft pick to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in exchange for a fourth-round pick. Yes! Very much! Yes! <laughs> That's amazing! This is, uh, there's two uh, ways to view this. Like, so first I'm off, the giddiest Tampa, person ever. Tampa's legit on offense. They already were. Uh, secondly, what do they do at the tight end position now? They already had some weapons there. Do they move those aside? And then if this doesn't work, like if they aren't a playoff team at this point, this has to be considered a, an abject failure because you could not have more weapons on offense than they have, especially given you haven't gone to the draft yet and you could add a running back if you need to. Like it's th- this has to be a playoff team for this to be de- ruled a success at this well, point. Well, and now you can trade OJ Howard if you need that. I'm not I'm not necessarily suggesting they do or should, but um if they wanted to, they could trade OJ Howard and try and recoup a draft pick or try and add a draft pick for uh, the NFL draft that goes in two days time. Like this is unbelievable as, as a long suffering Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan to now have the greatest quarterback of all time. And one of the greatest tight ends of all time on your team. It's, kind of exciting i'm not gonna lie i'm kind of a giddy child again i haven't been this excited for a buccaneers football season in probably a decade uh i don't know what to expect there is a very large chance right that this could be as we've now said three times this segment an abject failure there's a very strong chance of that happening i won't be surprised one bit if the uh if the bucks aren't very good this year and and have a disappointing year but i almost don't care this excitement is way too much fun i get to buy a brady and a gronk jersey and not be ironic like not be one of those people who have a a bad jersey rob kerr talked about his number 99 washington capitals jersey it's like well you know gretzky never played for the caps right but gronk's gonna play for the bucks brady's gonna play for the bucks you can't change that my jerseys will be legitimate this is a very exciting time for me um please be happy for me logan please be happy for me uh pinder this is an exciting time so well, why, why do you think they still could flop like i i need you you, you should because be they're thinking the Tampa your team Bay is good Buccaneers. In fairness, I mean, to on the paper, moves, that's got to be the most dynamic offense in the league. No, well, yeah, and, and in fairness, what do they give up? A fourth round pick and fourth money to sign pick, Brady. Yeah. If it doesn't work, it's you know one year of Gronk on the contract and stuff. I, I agree with Pat. Until it's done, it's done. Pinder, you and me know how good a team on paper looks in San Diego for years and never does anything of note, right? So. It could still be a failure. We don't know what Tom is really in another place without Belichick, and we don't know what Gronk is after not playing for however long now. I don't know why you have to be stopping I, uh, all over this, Logan. Why do you no, got to no, be no, a no, 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 I'm just I'm uh, putting you can't words play both to sides. Your, to your you can't say it wouldn't surprise you if it's going to blow up and then. Oh, then I can Logan absolutely play both sides. Don't tell could. me what to do. I can absolutely, as <laughs> okay, a Bucks well, fan, I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> I can I can do whatever I want. This is irrational fandom. There does not need to be the that pinder is, yes. logic and catch people in lies and all the stuff that you love doing. I can be an irrational fan and be fully prepared for disappointment and also excited. You can't you can't even try to reason with me you have no say in this matter because you're not a bucks fan Mm. 
Okay, but I'm just letting you know the two things that you've said already logically do not Don't exist care. in the same I know universe. This, you live okay. for this. You live <laughs> to catch people and, and try to see if you can twist their words. I understand what you're trying to do, but it doesn't matter. Uh, they could have so a, you, you... A, they could have a 3-13 and 13 season, and I'm still going to look back fondly on this day when the Buccaneers acquired Rob Gronkowski. So are they good or are they not good? <laughs> Look, they have got the potential to be better than they've been in ages. I just know how this team works, and even when you're excited about them, they're awful. I understand how it works. So that's why being a fan of this team, you have to play both sides. You have to prepare yourself for disappointment because that's what they do so yes i'm more excited about them than i have been for years and i'm going to buy the jerseys but i'm not going to sit here and tell you there's no chance they'll be disappointing all they've done since winning a super bowl almost two decades ago is disappoint their fans so i i don't like i i, I have all the reasoning in the world to be um setting myself up for all kinds of disappointment where are we at in the career of Rob Gronkowski? What are we expecting at this point? I have no idea. I mean, let's... Because if he's I'm, healthy, I'm more, he's still arguably the best tight end in the game, right? I'm more excited. He's 30 years old. 31. And uh, he'll be 31 in a couple of yeah. weeks. So he still is... He's still very much... Uh, a guy that I think can contribute. What what gives me a little bit of hope from, even, even if I'm looking at this from an objective standpoint, the fact that he hasn't played in a long time, I think could be big for him. The fact that he has gotten himself a long stretch of time to be able to rest and recover from all those injuries I think there's a big chance that this will be big for him. He didn't play at all last year. so the fa- and, and really, he's played what? six games in the last three years so with all of that um or sorry that i want to say like there's been 10 games in the last two years the fact that he has not played a ton and the fact that he's gotten that full year to recover i think there's a chance he comes back pretty close to vintage rob gronkowski and i'm excited about it because Here's the biggest character maybe in NFL history coming to the team that I cheer for. That's also exciting. But I do think from a football standpoint, there's a chance that the recent vintage Rob Gronkowski where he hasn't been healthy and hasn't been as effective, I don't think that that necessarily is what you're going to see if if he does end up being a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for real and this actually happens because there's still pending physical and all that type of stuff. I do think there's a chance that he can be a pretty good version of himself. Jay Glazer and Ian Rappaport both have him passing a physical already. Do this. So this apparently was, was coming, so... Um. Here's a little bit of the text line, 960-960. Pat is so getting a Gronk jersey now, 100%. I thought Gronk was done playing. I did too, um, but I'm happy for this. Hey, Pat, I feel for you. You're in for the biggest Bucks disappointment yet. Um, this uh, Here's uh, Killjoy Logan on the text line. Yeah, don't be too excited, bud. One player is coming out of retirement, and one player should have retired after last year. Um, what else we got here? Uh, I think DJ Powerplay should apply to make an appearance at a Bucks game. I mean, I don't know if I need to apply. I'll just buy 
potentially tickets. Um, as a Chargers fan like Pinder, listening to Pat swoon over Brady and Gronk really makes me hate that we missed out on it. Is that really what this comes down to, Logan? Are you more just upset that you didn't get Brady and you didn't get Gronk? No, I'm perfectly fine with our own brand of uh, <laughs> failure and uh, disappointment. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to steal somebody else's thunder. Jerseys we'll, look good. The jerseys we'll, dropped yeah, the today. jerseys like look the good. That's always jerseys. been the best part about being a Chargers <laughs> fan is the jerseys. Yeah. So powder blues. I don't. I don't need to. We don't need to steal <laughs> somebody else's. No matter how talented they are, sort of. They'll uh, screw it up and they'll look good doing exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, geez, guys, try to let Steinberg be happy for a couple minutes. Uh, Pat, I was a fan of the Patriots from the start of the dynasty, and I jumped ship once Brady left, and now it's even better with Gronk on board. For all, suck it. Uh, I'm looking forward to You're seeing Gronk and way. Brady. You're ready for that. You're ready for like, the bandwagon to lower hey, up Hey, there is so much room on the Tampa that. Bay Buccaneers bandwagon. There is not more room on any other bandwagon in sports than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers bandwagon. There's room for all. Come on over. Come on. And uh, I don't even care if you jump off once they're brutal again. But come on. There's, there's plenty of room on this bandwagon. Rob Gronkowski to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady, who is breaking rules in South Florida, um, so he can go get his uh, get his workout on. Uh, this is a this is a Tampa Bay Buccaneers off season. I never thought I'd yeah, see. Yeah, what's Pender that about, Steinberg. Tom? You make thirty million dollars. You can't afford a home gym and stay inside. You got to go like you don't work have a out back. And, You're staying like, at Derek Jeter's old place. You, you can't mix in a uh, you can't mix in a backyard workout. You got to go to that park. Weird. Anyway, Tom can do no wrong. Uh, next up. <laughs> Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, as we're underway on Pinder and Steinberg. Uh, one of us giddier than the other. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, the fan. 233. Welcome to day 41 of the sports apocalypse. Our NHL insider, Chris Johnston, with us. Uh, CJ, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. We got a little NFL news. Some stuff's happening. Watch the uh, Michael Jordan documentary. Things are picking up here yeah. in quarantine life. I uh, I watched uh, the first episode of The Last Dance last night. We just reacted live to the uh, the Brady Gronkowski reunion in Tampa Bay. Uh, the floor is yours. I'd love to hear your thoughts on both. Well, the I love The Last Dance. I mean, if they had to put out all ten hours right now, I probably would have watched it in a day and a half. I uh, just would have binged that thing. Um, you know, during it, my wife and I were saying we almost forgot there was a pandemic for two hours just uh, watching those first two episodes last night. Uh, you know, as for the, the Gronk news, I guess it had been out there. I hadn't heard anything about it, but, you know, I think it, it makes the Bucks pretty intriguing. You know, Brady's got some weapons there, and even though he's he's up against Father Time, which is undefeated for athletes, and going to be fascinated if the NFL manages to get their season playing to see uh, – you know how all those things line up down there with the Bucks. Um, with the Last Dance, how unprecedented is it uh, to have that kind of access? And do you think, or wish, or hope, or have seen the NHL doing similar things? Because I've always felt like that NFL f- films has, you know, allowed that league to just have such an incredible, you know, marketing arm. And maybe marketing is the wrong word, but just in terms of exposure, I mean. W- could something like this ever happen in the NFL or in the NHL, excuse me, is the question. 
I, I think it could because, you know, there there have been cameras behind the scenes, I want to say the last number of seasons anyway, you know, especially when you get down to the final four of the playoffs. I'm talking about, you know, outside of occasions, obviously we've had teams trailed before outdoor games, but there there has been footage captured. The only thing I'm not totally clear on is what becomes of it. Is it immediately destroyed or is it something that can be pulled out later? I mean, it's, it's certainly not in the scope of, following one team for an entire year the way, you know, you have with, with the last dance. But you know, I, I have to imagine the cameras have caught some some interesting stuff, especially at that that tenth time of year where the games matter so much. And, you know, I, I do hope that uh, all that stuff finds a way to live. I mean, when John Collins uh, was there at the NHL, he was really the driving force initially behind, you know, the Winter Classic and some other things the league did. And, and he had come from working for NFL Films. So I think that he in particular got them started down this road a little bit. And, and um, you know, I guess the, the the question that I don't have an answer to is whether at, at any point, 10 years down the road, five years down the road, we'll ever see some of that stuff. But, you know, I do think more and more is being shot and I hope it's being kept because, you know, once you get to a safe distance, I mean, it would have been pretty explosive at the time, I think, to see Michael Jordan openly taunting his GM in the manner that he does in, in those first couple episodes. But 20 years later, it's, I think relatively harmless. It's able to be contextualized. You, know, you have the owner talking about how, how good a job the GM did too, but there, it was just some specific tensions. I think that, that you know when we step away from things, some of these stories and 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 getting to see this still is is pretty cool and and you know isn't maybe as salacious as it would be in the moment. Dan Riccio, our buddy at Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver, just tweeted: "Somebody get that Last Dance film crew on this 2020 Bucks team." There's the uh, putting everything tied up in a nice little bow there from our opening couple minutes. Love it. I would uh, I would take that, and I, I do hope because I've been even watching uh, the F1 series on Netflix. I watched Sunderland Till I Die, the soccer series. I mean, I, I want more of this in general in the NHL. Even uh, I think there's a lot more room to to do things like we've seen in some of those other series. If you've seen any of them that that aren't happening right now. Uh, okay, James Myrtle had a piece up uh, in the last 24 hours on the Athletic regarding escrow and the, and the massive um, trouble that looms if there isn't uh, a new CBA or at least some sort of new agreement between the PA and the league. What's the latest on that front, or do we have to get uh, onto the other side of this thing before you see the PA and, and uh, owners getting together on a new agreement on, on what to pay guys and how to split HRR? Well, I can't say for sure when a new agreement might come, but I do think the significant aspect of the players delaying the decision on their last paycheck um, you know, initially it was going to be a paycheck paid on April 15th, then it was pushed back a week, and now until May 15th. It does extend the window here for those talks to happen. And, and you know, the one thing I think James was was correct on in his story is that, yes, obviously at a time like this, there's there's far more important things than what uh, relatively or, or pretty well, well, well-off athletes do with, with one paycheck. But, you know, where it's significant in the context of the sport is that, you know, as the players decide what to do, I think that they want to know what they're deciding. I mean, what does it mean if they do say choose to give back 50% of that paycheck or maybe even a hundred percent, what will the owners give them in return? How does that fit in to the entire system? I think that there's a general sort of acknowledgement from both the league and the players end of things that, you know, the, the system that the, the league has played under doesn't contemplate a pandemic, doesn't contemplate the possibility of, you know, 1 billion, 1.2 billion 
uh, being lost from the system, you know, in one sweep of events the way it, it you know, it could happen here, depending on if they're able to, to resume and finish off this season at some point this summer. And so, you know, I, I think that the, the larger significance of that decision is that there are discussions going on uh, with the, the PA and the league about, you know, a way forward. Uh, you know, I, I don't get the feeling as though they're, they're necessarily going to come out and announce something on May 12th that, that they've, you know, extended the CBA. But I do think that this decision uh, facing the players is, is one of the, the first dominoes, I guess, where that, that you know, they, they have to have some idea of what they're getting back in return before they make that decision. The decision on its own uh, is a difficult one for them them to reach. They need to know the wider context. And, and I do think that, you know, here in the next few weeks, you're, you're going to hear more about, discussions going on with the league and the PA and, and trying to, to build the best uh, system, I guess, to, you know, to, to correct this and, and to get through this, this difficult time for the business of hockey. And so if nothing changes, if we start a season, say in November, um, what, what happens? Are we just expect is massive escrow exactly what happens? Could the league theoretically start the cap way lower? I mean, if nothing happens and there's nothing new agreed on, between the two parties, what are we looking at in the fall? Well, at minimum, the league and the PA have to agree on what the salary cap is. So, you know, there would there would have to be an agreement, uh, which which normally is a little is is relatively harmonious. It's, it's, there's a formula there. They're, they project where the earnings are. The players apply a, a percentage increase. So it's, it's not necessarily something that involves a ton of discussion. But obviously, with with what's happened here there would be discussion, you know, whether they're setting it at the same level, which I think is likely. I don't think it's, it's, it's very likely at all that we see it go down by any significant amount, at least not with, without some other agreements in place, like I'll you know, say the players, you know, taking a salary rollback or things like that. You know, I think the reason we're going to see an agreement, frankly, is that there isn't a way to do this uh, where things just proceed as normal. Uh, you know, I think that, that uh, the players potentially could, you know, not want to play in November if, if it's just, you know, that they're only going to get X amount of their paycheck because that's grows so high. I think really the only way to continue playing, frankly, is is for the sides to reach some kind of agreement on a whole host of issues. And, and that's probably the, the biggest reason why we are likely to see the CBA extended, but also, you know, a, a different level, I think, of, of cooperation than you've ever seen in our lifetime between the league and the players union because they both need each other. And, you know, if, if they can't agree on anything, I, I don't even know if there, there are games in, in something like this. Hmm. Uh, Chris Johnson, our NHL insider, joining us uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. CJ, where would you, uh, you know, we're seeing news of the Korean Baseball League getting ready to start in a couple of weeks. We know the Bundesliga in Germany is getting close. Uh, Spanish soccer has uh, at least agreed upon a plan to return to practicing. But, when it comes to the NHL, from who you've talked to, where is the optimism level right now? Well, it still seems pretty high, you know, among the league executives. I get the feeling that, that it's it's more mixed among the players and agents. I think they're just not totally clear on what it means and, and what it'll look like because, you know, they haven't been faced with one specific decision at this point. But, you know, I think especially because there, there's been so much optimism coming from the U.S. government and that, you know, there are these other leagues that are they're contemplating doing the same, that there's there's at least a fair amount of hope that there's going to be a way to make this happen. Now, you know, I don't see games in any scenario being played before, you know, the start of July. I think that, that that's 
probably the earliest time frame you're looking at now. So there's still, you know, quite a bit of time between then and now uh, for things to change, I guess, one way or another, and maybe that the, the feeling of optimism or pessimism to, to either grow or fall. Um, but, you know, at this stage, I do think the league is, is feeling pretty good about, you know, its, its ability to, to find a way to, to have games without fans, to, to get in a, enough of a regular season or straight to the playoffs and all the things we've talked about in past hits. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, it, it is more than, it's more than just hopeful thinking. I think that they really believe it's something they're going to be able to pull off. And, um, you know, I don't get the sense they've taken any tangible steps more towards that. You know, I don't think there've been any real meaningful conversations with the PA about specifics at this stage, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it just, just feels uh, hopeful uh, from, from the NHL side of things that they're going to find a way to complete this season. What did the, I know that you tweeted a little bit about this last week, that news about the NHL in conversation with New Hampshire, like, is, is there any legs to that? Well, there's certainly legs to it. I mean, you know, it, it probably, again, doesn't go any deeper than the NHL making exploratory phone calls and saying, is this something you'd be open to? And in this case, the state of New Hampshire, the governor was is open to the possibility of that. And, you know, you have, you know, a pretty good facility there in Manchester, New Hampshire, where, you know, they've had an American Hockey League team in the past. The, the ECHL team plays there now. But, you know, certainly that's one of the, the cities that we can add to, to North Dakota, which we've talked about. I think Buffalo has, has been tapped. You know, I, I don't know what the other locations are, but there are other cities too that have reached out and have expressed an interest in, in you know, being added to the league's list. So you know, I think, again, the league's sort of getting the ducks in a row uh, for a time maybe when they do have to make those decisions, when they get a green light that they can find a way to play and, and you really have to dig down and decide uh, what it's going to look like. But, you know, certainly the early indications are Manchester, uh, New Hampshire is – is open to hosting the league. I think that there's a decent amount of places that that could be used to, to house players and team staff in a city like that. And, you know, especially if it remains an area that, that, you know, the infection level isn't too high, that there's not a, a coronavirus concern on, on the, the level there are in some other places that, you know, it is an option that, that could become available to the league to, to actually stage some games in. What can you tell us about this situation with uh, former high draft pick Mikhail Grigorenko and the Columbus Blue Jackets? Because it looked like that was signed, sealed, and delivered, and then not so much. Yeah, a bit of a misunderstanding there. I think ultimately the, the news of yesterday will be the news that uh, he is going to sign a one-year deal with the Blue Jackets. But, you know, nothing is binding. And, you know, my understanding of the situation is, you know, as often happens, uh, the Blue Jackets checked with the league before trying to register the contract. They were told to do so, and then after the fact, were told that the contract, uh, you know, wasn't able to be registered at this time. Essentially, because Grigorenko played in the league before in the NHL before, even though he's coming from Russia now and is out of contract with his Russian team, uh, he's viewed the same way Alex Petrangelo is uh, or Taylor Hall. You know, any of the guys that that don't have a deal already for 2021. They can't sign another contract right now unless they're extending with their current team. And so, um, you know, that that was a bit of a snafu, I guess. But, you know, as I say, I, I don't get the, the feeling that this is, you know, this guy's going to test the market or that someone's going to step up and try to pay him $3 million instead of the $1.2 million he'd agreed on with the Blue Jackets. I think there was some good faith here that, you know, this is a good opportunity for Grigorenko, who, you know, I think could be a, a pretty savvy signing, actually, for Columbus. I mean, at the the dollar figure they agreed to him, assuming that that is what you know the contract gets registered as, 
either on July 1st or whenever the, the rules are adjusted to see what the new free agency date is. You know, there's, there's very little risk for the Blue Jackets in that sign, and they could send them to the AHL if it didn't work out without a cap penalty. And, and I think more than likely, if you look at the production this guy's had the last two seasons, especially uh, playing over in Russia, you know, that, that that looks like someone that could be a pretty good value signing for the Blue Jackets. Saw the Habs sign a goaltender today. We saw the Maple Leafs get in on a Russian player last week. Is this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, like is this a normal thing that we see this at this time of year, or is, is there something going on that's leading to a little bit more interest in Russian players right now? Well, it's normal that teams would look to sign these guys. I think what's, what's changed this year is that uh, the KHL is instituting a salary cap for next season, and you know, my understanding of it, and I know the ruble moves, but it's a cap that's somewhere around $20 million. So uh, some of the money that was available to top players in the past in Russia is is going to dry up. I mean, it's, it's not to say the stars won't still be signed, but, you know, you have a couple of the the top players in that league are already co- committed to coming to the NHL. Ilya Sorokin is a goaltender that's going to sign with the Islanders. He hasn't officially done so yet, but he's a draft pick by them. He's been the top goaltender over there. He's going to sign... Uh, Kirill Kaprizov is a Minnesota Wild uh, draft pick that's going to come and sign and play for the Wild next season. And I think, you know, some of these other guys you're hearing of, it's not a coincidence in as much as, you know, I think that the the ability for them to command big salaries is being, um, you know, constricted with the the introduction of a salary cap. I mean, essentially, the KHL the last number of years – uh, you know, it's it's a league with more than 20 teams in it, but it really has been two or three powerhouse teams, St. Petersburg, Red Army, and Moscow, and that have, you know, that those two teams alone basically were the entire Russian Olympic team back in 2018. Um, and so the league is looking for a little bit more parity and obviously to try to create conditions. Opposite, have you heard this before, where some of the smaller market teams or uh, smaller funded teams, you know, have a, more of an ability to to compete. And, you know, I think the result of that is that the top players are, would, would have been coming over here in droves probably if things were normal. You know, the one thing that's changed now is no one really knows when the next NHL season is going to start. And, and all the guys we're talking about aren't eligible to return, you know, this summer, you know, should the league be able to finish off the season or the playoffs, you know, all these players aren't, are not going to be able to be a part of that. And so if they're looking at a year starting next November, it's just a long time for them to have to wait. Uh, from not having played games from March potentially all the way till November. But, um, you know, as a whole, I think what's changed is uh, there, there's more op- the sort of things are shifting and there's more opportunity here in the NHL, at least in theory, for these guys. And you know, that's why we're, we're probably going to see more come over than I've already just signed here in the last week or so. What's your gut on the future of Dustin Bufflin now that he is officially no longer a member of the Winnipeg Jets? I'd be really surprised if he played again. You know, I mean, the thing we shouldn't overlook in this whole scenario is that that the Jets offered to trade him two separate times during last season if that was something that interested him. And and at the time, he and his representative indicated that he wasn't. You know, he did have ankle surgery last fall, and had he rehabbed himself and got back to a point where he was deemed healthy, you know, he would have been in a position to, to collect what was remaining on his contract. And instead... Uh, what's happened here is he ended up walking away from $14 million, uh, you know, for this year and, and what was owed to him next season from Winnipeg. You know, everything about the, the scenario around this kind of suggests he won't play again, but no one can say for sure. I think that 
uh, you know, he's, he's always been a player that's been a little bit of a uh, enigma to, to outsiders. You know, it's been tough to understand him. He hasn't always been forthcoming with the media and he's always sort of danced to his own drummer. So, you know, I can't rule out a hundred percent that the team won't put something in front of him here in the future um, to that, that might entice him to try and play. I mean, certainly I think he can play. If you look at his last full season with the jets, you know, last year around this time, he was playing in the first round for them against St. Louis. He played more than 26 minutes a night uh, in that series and, and produced a lot of points and, and was an effective player. And, and even at an advanced age, even, you know, as someone who's never been trimmed by professional athlete standards, you know, I think that he's got a very unique skill set and, and could, could be an effective player in the league. I just get the feeling here that, uh, that, that the light's gone out on him, probably the combination of the, the beating he's taken over the years, some of the injuries he's been through here recently and just, you know, getting on with age and having earned a lot of money at this point in his career, that, that the combination of those factors have kind of taken away mm-hmm. his desire to do everything he needs to do to, to be an NHL player. And as I say, I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if he was back, but you have to never say never, especially with a personality like Dustin Bufflin. Chris Johnston's with us. He's our NHL insider, joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. CJ, uh, we, we've talked about how curious an offseason will look like here for players, and we don't know when it will begin, when it will end, where it overlaps with other leagues. But what about this incredibly high-profile uh, free agent class of coaches with LaViolette, Gallant, uh, clearly Mike Babcock, amongst others that are out there and available, and a lot of interims around the league? Yeah, it's such a strange situation. You know, I, I saw the report that the Glant started talking to the Devils. Uh, I don't think a lot of that's gone on right now, even though, you know, New Jersey probably is, is in a little bit more of wrapping up last season, even without knowing what's going to happen just because of where they were in the standings. And it makes sense for them if they can to, to try to jump ahead and, you know, interview some of these candidates. My, my sense is that, you know, at this point, Mike Babcock doesn't, uh, have much interest in in resuming his coaching career at this stage you know I'll put him in the never say never but you know I think that he's had some opportunities maybe already that you know things he could have done that he's elected not to do and and so you know I don't know where he factors into this summer but but certainly guys like Laviolette and Glant uh, are are anxious to coach and I would expect somehow some way when the dust settles you know we'll be behind NHL benches uh, by the start of the next season it's just kind of been largely put on hold by this other than, than Glant having some discussions virtually with the, the Devils and, and you know them starting to look at what they might do with Alain Nezardine who finished the year as an interim coach who I believe is among the candidates for them. But you know this was going to be a strange year anyway. We saw so many in-season coaching changes. There's, there's four or five guys that still carried interim tags. And frankly, I think some of those decisions would be secured on how the playoffs went. And, and so if there aren't a playoffs and if things are over here, I think that'll muddy the waters a little bit, but um, you know, you, you have some pretty high profile coaches and with, with a lot of unsettled situations, I'd say even more than normal uh, at this point, uh, you know, when the season was paused, uh, I think it's very likely you're going to see all those guys find their way to a bench. It's probably just not going to be until there's some clarity on, on what's to come here. Yeah, just uh, more murkiness to be sure. And Boudreaux, another name in there that we didn't mention that certainly deserves to be in the mix. He wants to coach too. He's, he's, yeah. That guy was dying to coach the day after he got fired. So, <laughs> Okay, uh, anything else to update us from the Johnson household on surviving the pandemic? I know you were up in arms a couple of weeks ago with uh, 
some local politicians and their bylaws. Any update there for us? No, I've I've calmed down. I've, I'm staying out of municipal politics. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been isolating mostly in place. I still get out for the odd jog here and there, but uh, you know, I didn't. That was not a pleasant foray into the the public sphere. So I'm just trying to do what I'm told. And honestly, we had snow about four different times today, which is highly unusual here, April 21st. So there's not much desire to be outside right now as it is. All right, well, we're we're flirting with 20 here after uh, ages. We haven't had 20 degrees since October, I believe. So uh, we've taken the good weather, and we're happy to do so. We'll chat again uh, later on. Right on, boys. Have a good one. Josh Johnson, our NHL insider, joining us Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Uh, it is a weird spot for – if imagine your contract's up here this summer, be it a player or a coach. I, I kind of think of that – those tweeners too. Like if you're a guy that thinks you can get one more NHL contract, but you're not sure you probably have to either commit to going to Europe or to saying it's NHL or nothing. If you have to wait until September for an off off season or October, because those leagues will already be up and running over there in theory. Will they like, uh, do we know that? I mean, we think that, but I mean, there's still, there's still a ton of, um, there's still a, unknown, a lot of unknown when it comes to what the European hockey seasons are going to look like because they completely shut down. None of the leagues were able to finish mm-hmm. their years. So what does Europe look like next year? Now, I think that they'll be fine um, because I think that we're talking about, um, a, a, you know, a, a continent that is starting to really get on top of it here. Things are starting to look up in Italy even. But, I mean, d- are we talking about a full-fledged European season next year? I mean, there. That's why there's even more unknown if you're a player right now. Like, what the heck does next year look like if you're a bubble NHLer mm-hmm. and you don't have a contract? I I don't know what uh, I don't know what I would do if I was in their shoes. Well, and it's weird. I mean, if we think there's going to be a playoff without fans here in July August, um, I, I don't know that the U.S. is absolutely outclassing Europe with the way they've handled this thing. I, I feel like if you're optimistic for one, you're probably optimistic for the other, no? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how optimistic I am about it, it happening here. So, um, yeah, that's why that's why I say everything is completely mm. unknown at this point. I, I still have some optimism that um, the NHL is going to be able to return, but I, I don't know how high that is, and, and I don't yeah. know what's like everything is unknown because Europe is just starting to get on top of it. Do we get resurgences here in the next number of months? If the answer is no, then probably everything goes on as normal. If the answer is yes, well, a uh, completely different story, right? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, we've uh, got a great guest around the corner. Jordan Leopold's going to join us, a crucial member of the 2004 Calgary Flames, The uh, that Hard hat, green helmet, uh, blue collar group of guys that willed themselves to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final and were potentially robbed of a Game 6 Stanley Cup championship with uh, what, you know, we need some better video review, Pat. We'll ask him that and a whole bunch more. When we come back, it's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Well, it's a beautiful day to be isolated in Calgary, Alberta. Welcome back to Pinder and Steinberg. Let's uh, head down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline to welcome in a major component of the 2004 Calgary Flames, uh, Jordan Leopold with us. Mr. Leopold, how are you surviving the pandemic? 
Um, I am surviving. Luckily, uh, well, not luckily, but I'm a small business owner here in Minnesota, and uh, doors are kind of shut for me right now, and I'm getting a lot of projects done. Okay, so there's there's pluses and minuses there. You know, you're exactly. not bringing any revenue, but you're productive at home, right? I'm productive at home. I got five kids. Uh, I am now a teacher, um, and I manage uh, manage a facility at work as well. So <laughs> the teacher part is killing me, though. That's uh, that's something. So what is the day to day like in the Leopold house? That's a lot of humans to uh, be stuck together, so to speak. Yeah, I'll try to get up early and uh, get to work for a couple hours, and I'll come home around nine thirty in the morning and wake my six-year-old up for first-grade class, and then we'll we'll have class until about two o'clock. We'll make lunch, uh, and then I'll go back to work, and I'll come home by about five thirty for dinner. Then we do it all over again the next day. It's Groundhog Day every day. <laughs> so tell us about life. It's been what five years since you you hung up the blades. You've settled back into Minnesota. How uh, how far away do, the, do your playing days seem at this point when you look back? Well, they seem a long ways away. Uh, my body is uh, a little bit beat up, but I think hence everybody that, that walks away from the game after about three years, they start really feeling it. And uh, I definitely have, have felt it. I'm starting to feel my age. I turned 40 this year. And uh, you know what? I'm I'm enjoying it. Like I say, I got all my kids, but uh, my wife and I own and operate an event center uh, in Minneapolis. And it keeps us plenty busy along with the kids and activities and everything that goes along. But you know what? Uh, life is good. It's uh, it was a fun run there uh, when we had it, and also you know playing as long as I did too. So it uh, it the future is bright, but you know looking in the past uh, puts a smile on my face too. Okay, well take us back to your Calgary days. You're a well-traveled guy, but you, you might have been here for one of the most exciting springs in Calgary history, uh, way back in '04. What what do you recall? Um, pretty much it was a blur for me, <laughs> and I think I think a lot of guys will say that. Um, just living there, being uh, second year in my my pro career, uh, getting up there and being an underdog and taking this thing all the way to a game seven of Stanley Cup Finals. I mean, you you watch and and even in the states they've they've played the game as well. Um, and it, you just watch that game. I, I mean, it is literally a blur. But I just remember every time coming back to Calgary, um, people recognize me, which is just crazy. Um, I think it's it's almost surreal, but you know you talk about a magical run. Uh, that's the furthest I ever got on any team professionally, and um, you know what? It, it went by so fast that you know now when when we get the guys back together and tell stories, uh, then it starts to come back to you. But uh, what a what a joy to be part of that and uh, really resurrect the city. Well, and, and the, the fun part was that it was a group that just was so unlike a team that typically goes to the Stanley Cup final. Yes, you had great goaltending, but my goodness, that's a blue-collar group that were, it seems like you guys were all sort of fighting uphill fights against the odds uh, collectively. It was uh, it was a, a unique group of, of players, I imagine. Well, we were a bunch of misfits. We really were. I mean, uh, you look at us, we were very young at the team. Obviously, Iggy led us. Um, but to have myself, Andrew Ference, Mike Commodore, uh, Steve Montadore, Tony Ludman, um, you know, Dennis Gauthier, all, all these guys, uh, young in our careers, uh, really, really gave us an opportunity to have long careers. You know, I, I ended up playing 13 years, but I think every one of those other guys played close to 10 years, if not more. Um, so it's just a testament to, to what a, what a bunch of, what a group of guys we had, uh, very young, but learned a lot. You know, and then bringing Daryl in uh, my second year, uh, or actually my first year, uh, bringing Daryl in and 
kind of really changing the whole atmosphere uh, in the locker room and around the, the whole organization. Uh, ended up paying dividends during that time. But, you know, we were, we were expecting to get back there um, next two, three years, and it's just never really panned out. Don't know why, but, um, you know, the talent was there and everything was there. Yeah, it seemed like the wrong time for a lockout for that group. It's uh, That's too bad for sure. I need to ask you about Daryl. We'll get more to some questions about that run in 04 uh, as we continue. But we, we've heard some great anecdotes from former players, be it Craig Conroy or others, uh, about how he motivated you guys as that run went along. And sure, you get past Vancouver, but the Detroit series are where we got some really good anecdotes about Daryl poking you guys about, you know, if anyone needed any autographs from the wings, do you have any uh, <laughs> recollection of some good setter motivation uh, in the playoffs that spring? Uh, not, not even the playoffs, but just when Daryl came in, uh, you know, I, I will say this during the playoffs, Daryl was uh, the mastermind of everything. And he would break, break every series down into uh, micro series and, you know, small games and, and talk percentages. And I always talked about the numbers, not lying, but, you know, when Daryl first came in, I was a rookie. So, and I was American college kid. Daryl, you know, obviously from Alberta and loves loves his Western Canadians. Uh, I was his whipping boy. So, and whenever something went wrong, no matter if I had a good game, bad game, it was always my fault. <laughs> and, and and that that was okay. It, it ended up. Uh, I hated it at the time, but looking back, it was probably the best thing for me. Uh, you know, I had a lot of confidence coming in after my college career, and really had no idea what to expect from the pro game. And um, you know, college is a little bit different than than playing Western Canadian hockey or CHL. And uh, to get that opportunity with Daryl, he straightened me out pretty quick. But it got to the point where <laughs> Daryl would call me in the office, and I would already know what he's going to say, and I'd finish the sentence before, and he'd get so frustrated with me that he'd just say, "All right, get, you know, get out of here. Like, you drive me nuts. Get get out of here." So <laughs> Daryl and I had a love hate relationship there for a while, but. Um, really, I mean, you see him now, or even I saw him on the road, always give a big hug and say hi to him. And, um, I, I think he had a mutual respect for myself and, and me as well for him. I mean, he's one of the better coaches I had throughout my playing career. Chatting with Jordan Leopold, former flame here on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Jordan, a lot of times when we look back at that 4 run, the first two names that come to mind are, are Kiprasov and Aginla, and no doubt for good reason. But you spent a lot of time with uh, number 28. Tell us how important Robin Regeer was in 4 and how much of a rock he was back there on that blue line. I think you look at the way the game was played back then, um, big, rugged defensemen. You know, there were a lot of them there, and, and Robin – uh, went through definitely his uh, share of adver- adversity with, uh, his, I think it was his car accident and being a few years out after that, battling battling back through that at a young age, playing some big minutes. Um, I didn't look, I didn't see him as an equal to me by any means. I mean, he was always uh, a couple of years older of a veteran, uh, even when I, when I started playing with him. But for him and I, I, I know we had a chemistry there, and we did, and then Dion came in, and everything kind of uh, broke a little bit, and we got reunited back in Buffalo. Um, and Lindy Ruff, you know, I remember going to Lindy's office and saying, hey, Robin and I, you know, have some history here. Why don't you put us together? Oh, no, 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 no. And it just never never ended up being. But I just wonder what it could have been if we would have been reunited again um, in Buffalo. But as far as a, a rock back on the blue line back in that early 2000 era, man, he was one of the best. And, you know, Olympic team, all that, he, he got the accolades for it and well-deserved. 
Tell us about playing with him specifically on that run to the cup final because you know you guys saw some pretty good opposition and and as the number one shutdown pair like it was the the Naslin line and then you saw some high-end players in Detroit and San Jose and obviously what what Tampa Bay threw at you just I mean when you look back on on those four rounds and the opposition that you two guys faced each and every night how do you reflect on that? Well, it, it was yeah, quite a run. I'm glad we were young because at, at the time we got down to four or five defensemen in, a, in I think, the Detroit series. Um, I remember we called Brennan Evans up from uh, the East Coast Hockey League. He hadn't played a game in, I don't think, three weeks. Uh, and he played him one to two shifts, and Rob and I logged 30-plus minutes you know, a night during that series. And it was just amazing and and for robin you know the stay-at-home defenseman he he did have offense side me have a hard shot he'd get up in the play but he kind of let me do my thing which was which was really nice and i always kind of we had that cohesiveness where i knew where he'd be if i was in a certain spot so it made my job a lot easier with the familiarity of playing with him and starting that my rookie year and in, in uh you know 03 uh 02 a little bit uh we started to create some chemistry and it really really proved because uh you know when our bodies weren't really holding up in that 04 uh, playoff series we we led to our instincts and more positional and and some of that stuff and it got us through games and of course kipper standing on his head too uh definitely made our job a little bit easier too i remember looking back and watching that first game in vancouver and and you know for people in this city it was it was so exciting the flames hadn't been in a postseason game for the better part of a decade and then here they are going up against the big bad canucks and i remember watching you and regeer out there and then it just dawned on me that holy cow like this is the first playoff game for both of you guys and and the first playoff game for so many members of that team take us take us back to game one against vancouver like how quickly do you realize that, oh, this is a little different than the regular season, that this is a whole new level? Oh, first shift. First shift, man. I mean, uh, there is nothing like the first series in the playoffs. So you get through that series, you're bruised and battered. Um, it it happened many times throughout my career, and it's the hardest series to get through. Uh, it's just on a physical standpoint, mental. Uh, it's a complete flip of the switch from regular season to, to playoffs. And, Really, when you came out, in, or when we came out in Vancouver, and you hear the uh, uh, who was it, the U2 song, uh, "Streets of No Name," I think yep. it is, and you hear that, and you're like, okay, here we go, here we go, you know, and you you got the butterflies going, um, you're just waiting to get your first shift and and just get the, the get going, and really <laughs> that that Vancouver series, I laughed because uh, you know, like Game Seven, we go in overtime. Well, Daryl put Robin and I out for the last shift of uh, I believe it was third period and they scored with like a minute left to push yep. push overtime and I was on the ice and Daryl just looks at me and I knew what he's he's gonna do he's like never again <laughs> and, and I didn't play the last shift of a, of a game since since that in the whole playoffs I, I think Rhett took my spot in the last uh, minute of each period and you know that that's fine justified um, and then game six I was on the ice for uh, the overtime overtime winner uh, with uh, St. Louis scoring too. So I, I didn't have the best luck at the, at the wrong, <laughs> wrong points of the game, but um, you know, it's, uh, it's just the way it is. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. If it's not, it's not. 
Was there? I, I remember Game Two after after the Flames lost Game One. I remember Game Two in Vancouver when when you drew even. That was when it really clicked for me. It's like okay, like this is this is on for real. This isn't just a little cameo appearance for the Flames in the playoffs. These guys have have got something. Was there a moment for you when it clicked and said, okay, you know this this team is more than just a team that snuck in. We can we can do something here. Well, I think I think we knew we could do something. You know, it's just a matter of putting it together. Um, you know, for us, even going to that first series, it wasn't. We knew it wasn't going to be a a four and out. Um, you know, we knew we were going to see six, seven games. So we we planned on that. We planned on it being a back and forth type deal, and um, that was the way for all of our series. We knew we had the battle. We knew we were going up against opponents that were very strong. But anything can happen in the playoffs. And and you look now, there's even more parity in the league now than there was uh, back then. But it. Anybody can really win at any given time. Um, of course, we're not one and done like there are in other sports. Uh, but the the game seven uh, matchup or the seven game series is just amazing, and it's one of the one of the best experiences I've ever had in sports, uh, being a competitor and also watching them. I remember, and I've heard you talk about this a number of times, but I've never had the opportunity to ask you the question. You get obviously at the end of seven games against Tampa Bay heartbreaking finish and a disappointing finish but from a physical standpoint how beat up were you at the end of those four rounds what what type of physical toll did that take personally on on your body uh it took me three to four years to get back to where i needed to be it really did uh i i had a kid during the second round after game two in in detroit uh, my wife was pregnant at the time and my first daughter um and then I had two hernias uh, at the time, and because of the hernias, I was having pulled groin symptoms, um, psoas symptoms, bad back, uh, everything. I I was on a drug called Vioxx, and the Vioxx was a fountain of youth back then, and took that drug and you didn't feel a thing. But I tell you what, when I got off it, I could not move. I mean, I couldn't walk. Literally could not walk. I got back to Minnesota after, couldn't walk. Uh, nothing, you know, and for many years, uh, you know, even during the lockout, I just dealt with a, didn't know it was a hernia, didn't know it was any of that, actually thought it was my groins and had my groins worked on a little bit. And then I got traded to Colorado probably, probably because I was a little bit damaged at the time and maybe the flames knew it and got traded to Colorado, go to my physical and they go, oh yeah, you got two hernias, we got to get these repaired. Um, <laughs> it almost, almost uh, botched the trade, uh, but Colorado kept me and I was injured pretty much for two and a half years there um, continuously and just I was a band-aid and really I was because of the old four run and because of the, the brutality of uh, of the series I remember when we played in Vancouver I got hit by Matt Cook so hard in probably game one or game two that I, I couldn't even breathe and I had probably three ribs out um, pop them back in and go back and play and that's just what what we did and you know, those are the stories. And, and at the end of the road, you know, there's uh, normally the team that's most banged up ends up sacrificing and, and winning uh, winning the ultimate prize. It's amazing you uh, it's amazing you, you say that. And, and it took you that long to get back to where you needed to be. And that's with an entire year of not playing. Like, where would you – was there any way you could have played that, that next season if they didn't have it end up being canceled? No, no, I didn't even I didn't even skate during that lockout. I was trying to figure out what was going on with me, and you know, you see a bunch of specialists, and they don't know, and then all of a sudden I see a different group of doctors when I got traded, and that's that's really when 
the light bulb went off and go, okay. And I, I played, I played during the old five, oh six season banged up, uh, the whole, whole season. And I, I was, uh, and I did not have a good year. I think I had two goals and maybe a few assists, whatever it was, nothing like I had the year before, but my body was just in shambles and just kind of just trying to get through it. And that's, that's what I was doing. And I actually thought my career was over in, in, uh, 2007 or so, cause I was injured so much and to, to get through those injuries and, and deal with the adversity and, uh, you know, have a few people actually believe in you was a huge thing because the belief that people instilled in me gave me reason to, to keep wanting to persevere and, and keep wanting to go forward. So, you know, there were a lot of people down that road, but there are a lot of dark days, man. I'm telling you, a lot of dark days. And just, I mean, it wasn't so much in Calgary, but after that 04 series, I had a lot of a lot of injuries I went through. Probably a, a lot of other guys did too, but we just never talk about it. Jordan Leopold's with us, former Calgary Flames defenseman, as he uh, looks back on 04 and more with us on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. So, Jordan, who are you keeping tabs with, and how often do you get back to Calgary, given uh, you know how tight that group was? I have not been back to Calgary since uh, I, I played, so it's been five years at least. Um, and then the funny part is I, I get to see Rhett Warner once in a while because of uh, Buffalo alumni stuff, and um, I'll see him out there, and we'll we'll shoot the breeze, and then you know, he'll text me, and we got hooked up with a with an old four. Um, text group, which we've been chatting a little bit over this coronavirus period, and um, it just shows you how how bored we really are. <laughs> we haven't heard from each other in years, and all of a sudden, everyone's going, "Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm bored." Yeah. Um, but you know what? It's nice to hear from guys. Uh, a lot of guys now have kids, are grown up, they're all retired, um, on the bigger and better things, hopefully. And, you know, someday we'll have a reunion. I know that that's coming down the pipe here, and uh, we'll be able to see each other and hopefully have some laughs, have some beers, and uh, tell some stories. Well, believe it or not, uh, Mika Kiprasov has returned and actually showed up in a suite this season. Uh, unbeknownst to fans, he was flipped up on the Jumbotron, and the place went absolutely wild. So if Mika's beat you back, you're well overdue for a visit. Oh, oh is he back for good now? Well, I was, I think it was a one-off, but, uh, okay. that, that he had definitely seen a one-off. In ages. <laughs> okay. I, I heard rumors maybe going to move back. Well, and I think he, he did hang out around the area right after his retirement, but, um, yeah, if Mika can make it back, we need to get Leopold back in the mix too. Okay. One more for me on the, on the team front, you guys had Oliwa and then you added Chris Simon and past Ville Niemann how would any other team you played on over your career line up against those three clowns? Oh, that, that guy, those guys were tough, <laughs> tough, tough, tough. I mean, I, I played with Scott Parker. I, uh, I played with Goddard. I mean, I've played with, well, too many, too many people. I played on eight, eight different teams. So I've, I've seen run of the mill of uh, the tough guys, but you know, that's an era where that was tough, tough hockey, but, you know, for Oliwal, Oliwal, he scored a couple of big goals for us during that playoff series. And um, even look at Chris Simon, big part for us. Uh, you know, acquire him at the deadline, uh, big body, good in front of the net. He had, he had really good hands. You'd be surprised look at his hands were. And uh, testament to getting those big bodies. Uh, you know, at that time, that's what the game was. And you needed those big bodies to be uh, an impact for you and also uh, just agitate other team. And then Billy Neiman, I mean, the agitator, you know, there's 
there used to be one on every team and he was our guy nobody liked him everybody hated him got under your skin and you know, he scored some big goals for us too so the guys and that's that's probably the biggest reason why we had success because it wasn't mostly just our our top guys it was also guys that were role players that were were contributing in ways that they didn't uh maybe during the regular season and just they rose to the occasion during playoffs and that's what that's what uh you know you see with championship teams and we we're so 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 darn close uh i said last question i can't you keep triggering these these great memories i've got oh, okay going. so going. marty jelena the eliminator was born amongst oh. the fan base when it was vancouver then detroit then san jose does game six in the final in calgary is that controversy is that something that you even uh have have, have looked back upon i know chatting with rhett who worked on our station for like probably close to a decade. He said he, he didn't even know it was a thing until well after everything had finished. Yeah. And I was in the same boat. You know, it's uh, 15 minutes after the game, you're in the, in the back of the locker room. Going, oh, geez, what happened? And then all of a sudden the media is taking this, uh, you know, the goalie pad with the leg and taking it to a whole new level. And we had no idea, none. And I don't know if Daryl did. I don't know if anybody did. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny because I've I've seen Vinny Lecavier, I've seen Ben Clymer, guys that uh, you know played with or played against during that final, and just kind of poke at them a little bit, uh, letting them know they kind of stole one. But you know, really, um, it's if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. And for some reason, it, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Now, would I lo- would I have loved for it to to be meant to be? Of course, um, it would have been the best thing ever for the city of Calgary. Um, you know, and for all of us, put all that hard work in. But unfortunately, there's got to be somebody that loses, and we were, we were that team. But like I said, we were, we were so confident we were going to get back there. I remember saying a, a comment like, "Yep, we're going to be back. We're going to be back." And spent another 11 years chasing it, and didn't even get a sniff, I mean, not even close. And that's that's just how hard it was. And I don't think guys really at the start of their career realize how hard it is to get there until you actually do it's funny you mentioned those the 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 next 11 years jordan and and you go from calgary to colorado back for a little stint in in calgary and then uh it, it all ends in Minnesota for you, and and you get that opportunity as a as a Minnesota guy to play with the Wild as your last stop in the NHL. Just uh, you know, you talk about what you're doing now and and being able to settle back in your home state. But even though it was you know only a little bit of a cup of coffee there, how cool was that to finish off as a member of the Minnesota Wild? Um, you know, it was a dream come true, and I, I'll bring it to uh, perspective for the people in Calgary. Um, I, I got to play with a young. Uh, young NHL player and now emerging as a star, Matt Dumba at the time. And Matt is 10 to 11 years younger than me, I believe. Um, so when I came in, he's a Calgarian. His eyes were as big as I've seen everybody's eyes. And all of a sudden I come in the locker room and I'm sitting right next to him. And he just kind of looks at me. <laughs> doesn't even say it. just kind of looks at me in awe. Like, what's wrong with you? It's like, man, you and Robin were awesome. <laughs> I'm like, what? And I didn't even realize he's from Calgary. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, thanks. Uh, no, I'm from Calgary. I mean, I was a huge fan back then. That was awesome. So we kind of kicked it off right away uh, pretty well, and I gained his respect. And also, you know, he gained my respect too. He's an unbelievable player. But you, know, you look at uh, being able to come home for me in my home state, um, 
to be at home with family. I would have loved to have one more year, but I don't think the body was going to let me. And uh, obviously management didn't want to make that happen either. Uh, but to get the opportunity, um, just amazing. And, you know, someday when, when Matt gets to that age, hopefully he can come home to Calgary and have a little bit of a of a, of a show at, at home and uh, be able to play in front of his parents would be pretty neat. Jordan, thanks a ton. It's been great going down memory lane with you. We appreciate you sharing uh, the afternoon with us here for, uh, for a bit, and we wish you all the best with the business, the family, and staying safe in Minnesota. Hey, appreciate it. You guys too. Stay safe, all right? Thanks, Jordan, Jordan Leopold, member of the 2004 Calgary Flames. Uh, yeah, that, Pat, that's wild, the, the, the effects of that playoff run. He's talking three to four years before things got normal. My goodness. Oh. I remember. I just remember Rob Kerr saying one day, he goes, um, he goes, hey, like the, the lockout was actually a good thing for the Calgary Flames, and he goes through some of the guys that had injuries, and I was like, I, I'd never, I, I'd never even thought of that, and you hear, and it wasn't just him. There were a number of other guys that were absolutely yeah. beat to. I'm trying to think of the right word that I can use on pulp. the radio, but they they <laughs> were beat to tatters, beat to pulp. And uh, Jordan Leopold led that list. Like, as he said, he wouldn't have been able to play. Like, yeah, they lost an entire season. Didn't matter for him. He wasn't playing anyway. Didn't skate once. That is an incredible litany of things that he had to go through. My goodness. Well, and and you know what it really does is it puts in perspective. Like, okay, the game isn't the same now as it was then, clearly. You could, like, water ski through the neutral zone just dragging off a guy with your stick and, you know, all the clutching and holding and all that. But when you see a team go back to back, like we saw with Pittsburgh or Detroit way back, I mean, that is such a huge achievement. I think in this sport, when you look over the, the huge history of it and go back to the original six, or you look at the Oilers or Islanders, you're like, oh yeah, two in a row is not a dynasty. But in today's league and in, in a playoff that has four rounds, like it's incredible just to get back for a second consecutive season Never mind win it twice because of what he just talked about, that you're just a, a group of walking wounded usually by the end. It's it's that war of attrition. And I yep. firmly believe that if they didn't have to play 26 games along the way, they got a, they probably win a cup. Never mind you know, all the obvious uh, controversy in game six. But Tampa had a very, very leisurely uh, schedule in the East compared to what Calgary had to go up against, three division leaders and all the series going six or seven. It was, uh, and you're right, it was a different time and a different uh, style of game and, and probably took an even larger toll on your body uh, 16 years ago than even it would today, which is pretty incredible to think. Uh, great stuff from Jordan Leopold. Around the corner, we'll shift gears to the football world and a really cool story and potentially, maybe, a number one overall selection of the Calgary Stampeders. Going to talk to Jordan Williams ahead of the CFL draft coming up next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960 the fan back to pinder and steinberg calgary sports talk in the afternoon sportsnet 960 the fan welcome back to the program let's uh let's talk some football we are nine days away from the 2020 cfl draft that'll follow the nfl draft which starts on thursday so lots of football talk in the next week or so Thursday, Friday, Saturday is your NFL draft. Then next Thursday is the 2020 CFL draft. And uh, as we continue getting set for it, knowing the Calgary Stampeders hold the number one overall selection, uh, going to talk to some of the top prospects 
for this 2020 draft. And one of the most interesting prospects for this draft is a guy who really only became a prospect in the na- in the last few months. As we say hello to uh, former East Carolina linebacker Jordan Williams, who joins us on the program this afternoon. Jordan, thanks for doing this, man. How are you? Uh, hello, I'm doing fine. Who am I speaking with? Am I speaking with Steinberg or Pinder? It's uh, Steinberg. Uh, Pat, how okay. you doing? Okay, I'm doing fine. Um, and it's marvelous day. Exercising, staying fit. You're uh, you're down in North Carolina still. Uh, currently, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where I'm. At. That's where I'm uh, based at right now. Just uh, okay. training and uh, staying fit, like I said before. So tell us about the anticipation for next week. Like, is is that something that's front of mind right now, knowing that the draft is coming up? Is that something you're excited about, nervous about, or are you not even thinking about it right now? The, the thing about the draft, I thought I'd be nervous about the situation, but I've been through this process already, and I was already nerve-wrecked from the first draft. So, like, now it's kind of like uh, I'm laid back and I'm just locked and load and I'm ready to get on the field. So... No, no nervousness at all. It's kind of been a a whirlwind last few months for you because you didn't know for the longest time that the CFL draft was actually an option for you. The CFL was an option for you, but being a Canadian in the CFL wasn't necessarily something that was an option. Tell us about the last number of months and, and you determining that, yeah, you were eligible for this draft. It was a crazy situation because... I had the opportunity to go and play in the CFL as a at first as a practice squad. They was calling me, talking about they would like to offer me a contract to play on the practice squad. But when they were talking to me, they found out my mother was born in Canada, and I could be uh, I believe it's like an import uh, national. I don't know all the terminologies, but it's something along those lines. And when they said that, they gave me two options: like, look, you can either work your way onto a regular roster, or you can play as a national. And there's way more beneficial things such as marketing and such as playing as a Canadian and the ratio was brought up to me. So I felt like this was more beneficial and I had to sit out a year. That's the thing that wasn't beneficial to my career. I had to sit out. And during that time sitting out, I got tense because there's teams calling like, Hey, you sure you want to stay at home? We could call you up now, but uh, I waited and I, I learned from a great man. Patience is a virtue and that's where I'm at right now. So, te- so tell us a little bit more about the Canadian connection. Your mom is is from Toronto originally, and and you've you've made a couple of trips there before, right? Correct. My mother is uh, from Toronto. She played collegiate basketball in uh, the province of Ontario, and uh, my uncle is uh, IBF uh, bodybuilder, pro bodybuilder. He was an IBF pro bodybuilder. He's older now. He's like fifty something. But uh, I made a couple stays and a couple of visits driving across the border flying across the border to canada so it's nothing new to me okay so are you are you familiar at all with now philadelphia eagles linebacker alex singleton because he's a former member of the calgary stampeders in this city and has a really similar story to story to you are you familiar with him at all that's funny that you bring that up because i'm very familiar with him i don't know him but I had a former player at East Carolina, uh, Deshaun Amos. And I used to watch his games, and when I oh, watched nice. his games, number yeah, for the you guys know because you guys are Calgary people. When you guys watched his games, uh, or when I watched his game rather, I saw a guy. Uh, what was his number 49, 48 or something? forty nine? Forty nine. Yeah, I saw him. Yes, and I saw him flying around the field, 
And I was like, yo, let me look this guy up. And I saw his story with the practice squad, and he was like, you know what, let me enter the draft. And I was like, yo, this story looks uh, very similar. There's, I see the parallels there. So, yes, I do see the parallels. And uh, Alex Singleton, who's now for the in uh, Eagles in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Williams is with us ahead of the 2020 CFL draft next week, former East Carolina linebacker, and uh, just in the, the last number of months uh, has figured out that, yeah, uh, potentially being a national player in the CFL is an option that he can go down. So you uh, you were able to get to the Ontario Regional Combine, and you were able to actually show your stuff, and that's the only combine that the CFL was able to run before the, the pandemic shut everything down. Just tell us about your experience going through another combine and, and going through the drills once again i was very fortunate to go and uh perform in front of gms and all nine cfl teams because that's like i that, like you stated that's the only one that was there so if i missed that and they was like oh, oh my goodness what is jordan one is doing because they don't know if i'm been, i'm fat you know my position i can't be 300 pounds so they don't know if i'm overweight or things of that nature but to show that my athletic potential and to show my poise and uh, me adapting to the CFL game was, man, I, I can't even describe words for that situation. But like I said before, I, I believe in a higher power, so I'm very fortunate to be in that position because, like, like you stated before, all everything got shut down today. In the middle of the comm, I said, hey, you know what? Everything is shut down for the rest of the uh, year as in terms of the CFL combines. And I'm just so fortunate to be in that position. Did you, uh, because you were kind of the buzz of that combine coming out of it uh, in terms of your performance, did did you get that impression too? Like, did, did you come out of there knowing that you had yourself a pretty good showing? Uh, I can't deny. I, I knew I did pretty decent. But the thing is, I always had those numbers, and I always tested with those numbers. So it wasn't like a surprise to myself. It was more so a surprise to the coaches, like, wow, this guy stayed in shape when he was off. Like, a lot of guys just mess around and do other things. But for me to focus on football and day in and day out, grind my hardest every day, it, it shows my character. And I think that's the most thing that I got the most out of it, the character situation, as opposed to, you know, athletic potential. That's just that's just genetics. <laughs> it's, it, it's crazy that you talk about, like, to become eligible for the CFL draft, like the – the fact that you had to sit out a whole year and not play that that must have been uh that must have been a real exercise of kind of uh mental adversity as opposed to physical adversity how difficult was that to come to terms with it was very difficult but when i saw the politics of the situation and i saw like look if i play as an international I, man those careers as a football player football is a whole it's not a secure job. That's straight cut. But you'll get more security as playing as a national. And I feel like if I want to play this game long term, I might as well go and do this. It's going to be an investment. And I invested in myself for this opportunity. So that's how I looked at it. It wasn't too hard, per se. But looking at it as an investment, I feel like I hope it pays off. We'll see. <laughs> Talking with Jordan Williams, East Carolina linebacker and eligible for the 2020 CFL draft coming up next Thursday. Tell us about the the path through college because from from a physical standpoint, uh, you were a, a pretty highly touted and highly recruited guy, uh, but you didn't start immediately playing NCAA Div One football. Tell us about the path to becoming an East Carolina Pirate. Well, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll start off with 
coming out of high school, I was a non-qualifier, so I had to go to Shaw as a kind of as a prep school because I didn't have the money to go into a real preparatory uh, college. There's like $30,000 a year. So I went there, applied for financial aid, got my grades up, got a 3.7 GPA, and transferred right over to East Carolina. And my first year, I was a special teamer. And from sophomore, junior, and senior, uh, I was in the starting lineup for the majority of the time. Um, and then I had, an, uh, I had a decent career, but uh, I feel like I'm just scratching the potential. It's not even nowhere close to what I could scratch. So that's my story from high school to college. You had, like, from from a football standpoint, like, you had SEC schools interested. Like, the, the, you you definitely had some, some big-name coaches calling, didn't you? Absolutely. Uh, the biggest school, I had to say, is probably at the time was Auburn. And I believe they came right off the Cam Newton uh, run. And that was crazy, man, to see the coaches come all the way from Auburn to come and talk to you and pull you out of class. That's the craziest experience I've ever experienced in my life. But it's awesome, man. What was uh, tell us about East Carolina and 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 playing there? What was you know, I, I'm a I'm a Boise State fan. I remember East Carolina beat them in a bowl game uh, about a decade ago. Uh, that's really all I know about the East Carolina Pirates. Tell us a little bit more about the school, the campus experience, the football experience. Uh, East Carolina is a beautiful campus. It's in uh, Greenville, and everybody just welcomes you with open arms. And when you go to East Carolina, they'll tell you from the back, it's a football place. It's a football university, and it's football first. And we're known to take down top teams. Like, we're like the underdog team that a lot of people in Vegas and things of that nature will like to gamble on. It's like, okay, East Carolina plays this team? Oh, no, they might pull the upset. So everybody I see that's out of state, like our big gamblers, they know East Carolina because they know they make big money off, like, the over and unders and things of that nature. But nevertheless, uh, we're – a beautiful university, a football program, and we say family first, and that's the thing at East Carolina is family first. So you you're a uh, Fayetteville is where you're from originally, right? That's that that was home for you growing up. Well, home for me growing up, I'll say more so Pennsylvania, but I've lived all over the place. But I'll say Pennsylvania more than uh, Fayetteville because I only lived there for three years, and uh, my career was in uh, my college career was in Greenville, so. I lived all over the place, so I I wouldn't say just Fayetteville, North Carolina, but yeah. Okay, so you uh, so like you you coming north to Canada and playing in uh, like playing in Canada, that won't be any different for you, hey? Like you've just been you've been all over the place. You're used to living somewhere somewhere strange or somewhere different. Like you're you're ready to rock, hey? Absolutely, uh, I'm definitely ready to rock. I went to Toronto, at the Ontario Regional, and I saw so many diverse cultures and the food. And I ate this beautiful, uh, they call it gyro in their language. Our pronunciation is gyro. But that joint was <laughs> the best thing I've ever ate in my life. And just the culture, stuff like that. And then uh, my Uber driver told me to eat at this Italian spot. And it's so, like, the food, I love it. And uh, the culture. And everybody is so much, uh, many beautiful women and things of that nature. But uh, so many different things, cultural diversity, I love. So I'm open to living in Canada. So, uh, do you know much about where we're at in Calgary? Do you uh, know, like, they, they've got the number one overall pick. There's uh, there's talk that uh, Jordan Williams might be a potential number one overall selection. Do you know much about Calgary? I know, I wouldn't say much. I know enough about Calgary. I wouldn't say enough either. I, I know a little bit about it. 
because my former teammate played there, and I will just study the game, watch the defense, how they do their formations and things of that nature, um, see their mindset, like going for it on third down, QB sneak. That's everybody's mindset because that's like a high percentage play. But nevertheless, I looked at, you know, some of these guys' feeds on the Instagram story. I see they go to like horseback riding things and things of that nature. So there's some real horse and some country <laughs> stuff going on over there. But it's awesome. So that's what I know about the culture. It's very laid back. And it's the country places, probably not too different than Kentucky, which I'm, where I'm at right now. Yeah. So, yeah. But we got about 1.5 million people. It's big city, but it's got a good small town feel. So, you know, it, it, yep. it would suit you well if, uh, if you ended up getting drafted number one overall. What just in terms of the uncertainty and not knowing what's going to come next? We don't know when the CFL is starting football games. We don't know when the NFL is starting football games. Um, is, is that something that, that, is is creating anxiety or or discomfort for you, or are you pretty pretty okay to just go with the flow? Uh, no, I feel like as an athlete like myself, I don't worry about the things I can't control. You got to control the controllables, and that's one thing I learned throughout this past year. The greats they control the controllables, and if you can't control anything, you can't be worried about it. So I look at it every day like I got to tomorrow's going to be it. Tomorrow's going to be it. Tomorrow's going to be it, and I don't really look like two years it might not be a good thing uh, to be uh what they call it tunnel vision but that, i look at it as a tunnel vision situation where i don't really care about the outside noise and i just play my part and i try to train my hardest every day and whatever happens at the end that's what it's going to be so i don't really pay attention to any of that to be honest Final thought for you, Jordan, and I really appreciate the time uh tell us a little bit more about the Jordan Williams experience <laughs> Jordan Williams experience, uh, man, it's a long road. I, I could write a book about my uh, my childhood growing up, but with the Jordan Williams experience, you're gonna get a guy that's relentless. You're gonna get a guy that's right. Will open you with open arms. So we'll talk to you if you need help, and will uplift his community once he moves to it. And everybody around him is gonna eat. So I believe the Jordan Williams experience is about being the highest version of yourself. And once you're the highest version of yourself, you help everybody else around you be the highest version of yourself. That's the Jordan Williams experience. <laughs> I like it. I I'd read a story about it. I'm like, I got to make sure I ask him that before uh, before we wrap the interview. <laughs> hey, Jordan, appreciate the time. Uh, good luck next week. Uh, enjoy the draft experience, and uh, maybe we're talking to you again as a member of the Calgary Stampeders. Uh, maybe we're not, but good luck next week. Thanks for doing this, man. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. It's Jordan Williams, former East Carolina linebacker, now eligible for the 2020 CFL draft, which is a week from Thursday, nine days from now. Uh, the timing is 100% by design. They go from the NFL draft to the CFL draft, see what Canadian prospects get taken in the NFL draft, and that impacts how the CFL uh, draft order goes as well. Really enjoyed that chat, and uh, you'll notice the similarities late realization that he was eligible eligible to be a Canadian player in the CFL. His mom's from Toronto, even though he spent his entire life south of the border. Very similar to a guy that we got to know pretty well here in this city and Alex Singleton. That worked out all right. And you take a, you, you talk to anybody who has really scouted the CFL draft, 
Jordan Williams absolutely has number one overall talent written all over him. A lot of times O-linemen go number one overall, but if he were to go number one and if he were to be wearing red and white next season, wouldn't be the biggest shock I've ever seen. That's for sure. Jordan joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. We'll take a break. Come back. We're going to try uh, we're going to test it out we're going to try instagram live see if the show works on ig live uh we're just going to give it a try it's a pandemic we're trying new things um we got our nhl redraft coming up at the top of the hour and more next on pinder and steinberg sportsnet 960 the fan pinder and steinberg in the afternoon sportsnet 960 the fan Welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks to Jordan Williams, former East Carolina linebacker. He joined us in the last segment. Good stuff. And uh, we are currently trying to do something um, which you know could be called cutting edge or could be called basic, depending on who you're talking to. We're attempting to get the show on Instagram live. Um, what that would entail, there are some technical things that the first thing is um, – we need to get Pinder to learn how to use Instagram. So that would be number well, hang one. Hang on, hang on, hang on. First thing was to get me on Instagram, and get I did that almost sure. immediately. The second, now that I'm on Instagram, is I've been alerted to the fact that I need to be using the mobile app mm-hmm. to do this. Now, certainly text us if we're wrong, 960-960, but no, you're right. I can't look at the mobile app because I'm talking into my phone using an app that connects into our board with higher quality than over the phone. So uh, until I get two phones successful like Steinberg, I just don't know that we're going to be able to clear this roadblock. <laughs> I don't have um, I don't have two phones because I'm successful. I have two phones. The one that I'm using has a cracked screen, and uh, that's how I'm able to do this. Um, and you need it, a cracked screen to do it. Well, I mean, the phone is a crack screen, and then you can split it into two, and then you see both of our faces, but uh, you don't have that ability right now. Now, you are able to go on the air through your computer, which would then have your mobile phone free, but, uh, you know, that's that's a lot of technical stuff. We're going to test that, and I don't know about your work computer, but mine is uh, about as technologically savvy as like a 32-bit Atari. It's not really feeling cutting edge. I feel like you're uploaded uh, and up to date with really good technology. This thing, uh, I'm, I'm less confident in. So much so that uh, my work computer sits and watches me work on my own computer for the show. So anybody who's watching on Instagram live right now would be hearing a one-way conversation with me and then just hearing me react to nothing. Uh, that is That's exciting. working on. Um, you can stay with us. Uh, we, we're going to do a redraft of the 1997 NHL draft coming up next. We'll still try to get Pinder as part of this in the commercial break. We'll take a break, come back. We'll keep this thing going on IG Live and, and see if Pinder can figure it out. If not, uh, we have more bugs to wrinkle out. But, hey, thanks for being with us in the test run. And Pinder and Steinberg continues next. Our 1997 NHL redraft. We've had a lot of bad drafts so far. 97, not a bad draft. Next on Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Welcome back to the program. 
into the final hour, top of the hour. Comeback week continues for the Toronto Blue Jays. So tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going back to 2015. Huge, huge ninth inning at Fenway Park for the Blue Jays as they're able to come all the way back and beat the Red Sox. So we're going back to June of 2015 for tonight's Blue Jays Rewind at the top of the hour. But right now it's Pinder, Steinberg, and Logan Gordon. Logos at our downtown studios, the Basement Systems downtown studios. Pinder at Shea Pinder. I'm here at Shea Steinberg. Uh, Pinder's the only one of us not on Instagram Live right now. We've got Logo and I on IG Live. Uh, you can go join if you're so inclined uh, at Steinberg1984. We're trying a new thing uh, doing the show on IG Live. So it is. Uh, how's it going so far, Logo? Are we doing all right? I think we're doing uh, pretty damn well. If we could only get Ryan on this on this boat, we would just be flying. Just patience. But- I didn't have an Instagram account like an hour ago. We're going to have to work our way through this. Now we realize we need the, uh, the phone looking at me, and that means we have to run audio through the computer, which I'm very fearful of and would love to kick tires on when we're not on the air rather than on the air. Yeah, it's probably but, not uh, yeah, the best idea like to do in the middle we of could, the show. Logistically, tomorrow we could do this. Maybe pick an hour, do an hour. Boom. Yeah, i got to get my shelf we, set up. You continue. can't just sneak attack me without my shelf set up. You do need that's, a shelf uh, in the important. background. Uh, yeah. We've got all kinds of uh, local celebrities watching our IG Live, including Brendan Parker, who's joined in. Um, so, yeah, oh, go uh, feel free. Join in. Steinberg 1984. We're, we're just, it's a test run. It is going to be perfected at one point. We're doing our 1997 NHL redraft. We're kind of doing it in um, ass-backwards order because we started in 1998, which, full disclosure, was my fault. Pinder was like, choose a, choose a date. Correct. And I said, okay, 1998. Should have started with 1997. That's the uh, that's the one that you want to start with. So we're going to do 1997, even though we've already done 98 and 99 uh, and 2000 as well, I believe. So we're going to do 97 today. Uh, the 1997 NHL draft was held in Pittsburgh. The Boston Bruins had the number one overall selection, and they went with Joe Thornton as the number one overall pick. And gentlemen, um, and and Pinder, you go first. But it's it's tough when you look back at this 1997 draft. Like every other draft that we've seen so far we did not have the number one guy going number one when we redrafted it's tough not to have joe thornton re uh, as your number one in this redraft he is still the best player and there are some good players he's still got to be the best player that comes from this draft class the only real debate for me is roberto luongo because of what he's accomplished in the crease we're talking over a thousand games played that's incredibly rare rare for netminders just he and Marty Brodeur and Patrick Waugh have cracked a thousand games. So you're talking about, uh, if you think about like a war stat or how much you can help a team, when you factor in how long his career is, he's doing things that only two other players have done. And while Joe Thornton is still playing and incredibly long in the tooth and what a long career, I don't think he's uh, second all time in games played yet for skaters. So uh, Luongo actually shows up higher by some, point share values, which I know some of the websites run by essentially like a, a simulated war. But I, if you're getting a franchise netminder for two years or for two decades, or you're getting a franchise number one center for basically two decades, you're thrilled either way. This is not the dog of a draft that we've done with uh, 98, yeah. 99 and 2000. 
Logo, I, I had Joe Thornton going number one. He was the he was the number one overall pick in 1997. And I've got Luongo, who was the number four pick to the Islanders that year. I've got him going number two. Those are my top two from 1997. It's, it's like those are the two surefire, probably first ballot Hall of Famers in this class. Yeah, I think Patrick Marlowe gets that, you know, the tag of being probably more of a longevity type of guy. We've seen a number of those throughout the drafts that we've done already, especially, you know, we've seen some of those thousand plus game guys. And I know he's almost at, you know, 1700 games, which is, you know, a considerable amount when it's all said and done, but you know, he hasn't had the point scoring ability for a lot of his career that say Joe Thornton has. And, you know, Ryan underscored the value of, you know, getting a franchise goaltender for as long as Luongo has been one. Is just something that you just can't overlook because I mean he he did it for multiple franchises. Hard to imagine that he you know was a New York Islander uh, at one point in his you know career, but went on to do great things with Florida twice and was you know the backbone of a a Vancouver Stanley Cup run that we you know have just started hearing about again on Sportsnet and stuff. So yeah, I've got Luongo as my definite number two. Uh, where you come in at three is an interesting conversation between uh, Hosa and Marlowe for me. See, for me, yeah, I, and, and Pinder, I'm curious as to where you're at, because I, I have Hosa as the third best guy out of this draft class, just because, and again, Marlowe's hell of a hockey player, and his his career has, has spanned a good chunk of time. But what what makes Hosa the guy for me is that I look at Hosa in the prime of his career as, as one of the elite two-way wingers in this league. And, and he's got the cups. He's got the cup final appearances. And he was he was one of those guys that you could say you would build around that player and, and you would put that guy on a championship team, no questions asked. And that's not to say you wouldn't say that about Marlowe, but I just feel like even though Marlowe played more and his career was longer – Hosa, when he was at his best, was an elite player, and I think is a borderline Hall of Famer too. And I'm not saying Marlowe wasn't a good player, but I just don't ever feel like he got to the same heights as Hosa did. Well, I mean, I think it's almost as simple as looking at uh, points total for games played. It's, it's almost as simple as that for me, for Hosa to have almost 400 less games than Marlowe and still be at a considerably close points uh, career-wise tells you who was putting up more points, you know, consistently throughout their career. And you're right. Patrick Marlowe is still a great player and, you know, will go down as such, but the more impactful guy when he played was clearly Hosa. Yeah, no, there's no debating that when, as you said, Logan, career numbers are almost identical and one guy's played 400 less games. Um, longevity check mark goes to Marlowe, but the higher ceiling no doubt goes to Hosa, who again, remember, had uh, lots of term left when uh, it was found out that he was air quotes allergic to his equipment. He had a skin disorder that uh, allowed him to be what LTIR to become um, uh, Arizona Coyotes. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you it's right or wrong. I can tell you I'd never heard of that ever before in my life. That's what I can't tell you. I believe that was our, uh, that was our first like on air argument was the uh, the the legitimacy or maybe it was about Zetterberg but it was one of the two guys and you went right down that this is a 
farce. This is a sham. How are they allowed to do this? And uh, it was either Hosa or Zetterberg was our first, like, argument and set to on this show and i remember we were at the saddle dome i just don't remember if it was hosa or if it was if it was zetterberg but it was one of those two guys i don't even remember but that's probably saying more about me than you, you. don't remember what happened <laughs> yesterday so it's it's no not, I, I just I, I, it's not i, it's not I just debate here. people all day every day so it's not really a debate doesn't yeah, when you when you have so many really. more arguments in between you know yeah, from there it, now it how can you remember out. that one um to but you know what is interesting is that there's a lot of guys that have the similar sort of outcome where it's like okay you know guys are really dinged up for sure you understand that there's massive penalties there's cap recapture there's huge you know chunks missing uh, the amount of payroll you're spending on versus you know people actually being in your lineup luongo's the only guy that's actually retired and he had a decent case compared to some of the others that we've seen approved by the league in the sense that we heard about his warm-up right. routine where he needed like an hour to two hours to warm up for a morning skate and then to do all over again ahead of a game. Uh, and just how, um, you know, incredibly beaten up his body was that the, the process was nearly impossible just to get him into a shape where he could play. And yet he did retire. He didn't go down the LTIR route and the, the Canucks were left with that cap recapture for what this season and two more. Like it's uh, yeah. that was yeah. the outlier, which was kind of the point I was making was like, you know, there's always something. These guys are that dinged up, but you know, is it a hundred percent transparency and honesty, or is it a bit of you know, it's in everyone's best interest here, wink, wink? And of course, he's not a hundred percent healthy. But I mean, we just talked to Jordan Leopold; like he played multiple seasons where he wasn't hundred percent. And I don't know that anyone that plays this this sport into their late thirties or early forties is going to say, "Oh yeah, I got a clean bill of health. I'm good." Like you know, the guy I worked next to on a morning show. Uh, some days his shoulder just ached and he couldn't sleep and it was a nightmare. And that's a very normal existence for a 40 year old post playing career. Right. So we're doing our 1997 NHL redraft on Pinder and Steinberg. Um, and we, I think we've got a consensus top four and they were all first round picks that year. Uh, Thornton, Luongo, Hosa, Marlowe. They all went in the top 12. Thornton was number one, Luongo, number four, Hosa, number 12 and Marlowe, number two. And obviously the, the cool, um, and the, the neat little, um, side note to this whole thing is that Thornton and Marlowe ended up being teammates as the number one, two picks from, from that year didn't take very long. So who do we have as the fifth best guy coming out of that draft logo? I've got, I've got Brian Campbell as my fifth best guy. And he was a sixth round pick. Um, he ended up going 156th overall. I, I have him as the best defenseman from that draft. And I have him as kind of the next guy outside of that top four. I went with uh, former Flame Ole Jokinen um, as my fifth guy. Over a thousand games played at the center ice position. I know it really tailed off towards the end when he, you know, started seeing. Uh, you know, almost after he was done his last season as a uh, Flame, really is when it tailed off. But he did have some really impressive years uh, as a member of the Florida Panthers. Was you know the leader of that team through some some tough years and was an elite player at one point during his career. Definitely didn't show as well with uh, Calgary and the Jets later on, but I, I, I had Jokin in fifth. I'm going to put Campbell there and, you know, Jokin and just, he, he had that reputation. Okay. There's the most games played active in the league without playing in the playoffs. And then it, it really wasn't great. I mean, I think if you're going to break ties, 
uh, doing it with a guy that, you know, had a bit of success in the league and Brian Campbell as part of, at least a part of that Chicago dynasty with winning one of the Stanley Cups there. That's got to be some sort of a tiebreaker. It's just rarer yeah. also to have a 500-point defenseman over the course of his career. I mean, that's a really big number for D-men that I don't think we give enough credit to. I mean, if you go to the top 50 defensemen all time, in NHL history for points that cuts off at about 568. Dave Ellett is there. Like Shea Weber has just got into that group. The top 58 year position in production isn't far off from where Brian Campbell's production was. And it's funny yeah. each year we've had like a sixth rounder or a seventh rounder hit. It was Lundquist in 2000, Zetterberg in 99 and in 98, we had the, uh, the, the wings doing some serious damage with Datsik. Um, and then what Andre Markov, I think was in that class late as well. Yep. Uh, Markov yep. just cracks the top 50, but that, that's a really, really impressive point total for a defenseman and another steal late. So when you think, yeah, you know, there's no one left in this draft. There seems to be always one or two guys in those last couple rounds that can still be like fringy hall of famer, which seems crazy. I've got a few other sleepers from that draft. Uh, if you guys want to add any, uh, do so. Brian Campbell, for sure. Oilers got Jason Chimera, who put together a pretty darn good career. He was a fifth-round pick, was a full-time NHLer for a, almost a 1,000 games. Matt Cook, who, you know, we all despise him, um, but Matt Cook was a sixth-round player, a sixth-round pick, and, you know, solid defensive forward who also pissed a lot of people off. Ladislav Nagy didn't have a big NHL career, but was pretty productive when he played. He was a seventh-round pick um andrew ferentz was an eighth round pick that year uh and of course he had a pretty lengthy career and spent a good chunk of time with both alberta teams so you know you've got chimera cook naggy ferentz all who went in the fifth round and beyond those those would be the ones that i think you uh come away with from a sleeper standpoint brewer a guy that played in edmonton and was drafted by the islanders over a thousand games um was that first that's round an- pick uh, yeah, oh, was. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about other guys worthy of note, not just deep guys. Just, okay. just sleepers. Brewer was a first round yeah. pick, right? Um, yeah. That okay. So that's that would be the list I'm looking at. Sean Thornton, 190 to the Leafs. That's pretty late. Todd Fedoric, 164. But yeah, those aren't guys we're talking about Hall of Fame candidacy, are, are we? No, for sure not. And I mean, look, this is one of the few drafts where I think Pat, you, you made mention of most of the guys that would qualify for that. I mean, really only thing that I would say, maybe if you're, you're the Dallas stars and you're getting Brendan Morrow at the end of the first round like that, you're probably pretty happy with that. But you know, as far as sleeper quality goes, it's probably not uh, a big name in that one, you know, never an all-star kind of guy like that, but just a good overall player to have. That was a junk draft for the Flames. Like, they were awful that year. Daniel Kachuk was the first bust of that draft. He went sixth overall to the Calgary Flames, played 19 NHL games, combined the, what, how many picks they have? Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve picks that year. Um, Combined of the twelve picks they made, less than 100 NHL games. Kachuk played 19. Yikes. Uh, John Tripp was a second-round pick, right winger out of Oshawa. He played 43 games. Uh, They had a winger out of the University of Denver play 12, and a left winger out of Belleville in the O play 7. Like we talked about, um, there was a draft recently, I think it was the 2000 draft, where the Flames actually had a good draft. They just didn't have a lot of guys who played for them. This was not one of those things. That was a bad NHL draft for the Calgary Flames. Potentially the worst. Like you think about it, they had a 12 selections 
and nobody played more than 43 games. Like that's, that, that's a whole lot of darts and none of them hitting the board. Well, and we've mentioned this a few times and I think Pat, you had had the list, but the, this recent draft classes of uh, teams from Alberta have been awful. Like if you don't yeah, have Chimera in here for Edmonton, it is not good again. Again, they they picked twelfth again, and they totally uh, strike out. But and that's been with it. That's more an Edmonton thing than the Calgary thing that we've talked about. Even you know, I'm sure the you know Edmonton fans will say it's a Calgary thing. But every first round pick I think that we've gone through for the Oilers here has been a total bust. And it's not like the Flames were setting the world on fire either, because most of the guys that they wound up drafting went on to be good with other teams. Yep. Um, so reason. there were some, Oof. there were some other busts. Yeah. Michael reason was the, the, uh, yeah, best known for his candy. <laughs> he went, yeah. He went 12th overall to the Oilers, zero NHL games. Uh, and how about, uh, the cousin of, uh, Chris Chelios, uh, Nikos Celios or Chelios, yes. I think is how you say it. Uh, With he the went 22nd. He, yeah, the traditional Greek spelling. He went to 22nd overall to Carolina, barely played in the NHL, too. Um, there, was some, there were some bad picks. I mean, and I think Jean we're learning Francois that because we through these. Yikes. J.F. Domfus. Wow. He was a big name, too, when he was picked, J.F. Yeah. Domfus. But unfortunately, from 1997, as good as that draft was from an overall standpoint, uh the Flames had the biggest bust of that draft. Number six, Daniel no. Kachuk. That is that is kicking the gut worthy bad. No shout out though, because Andrew Ference did play for the Flames and was, as you alluded to earlier, an incredible value pick into the two hundreds, two hundred and eight. And they also uh, had shootout expert Christian Husalius, who was taken by Florida in the second round, I believe. He ended up spending a significant time in Calgary in his career, and I yep. think was one of the more underrated Flames to pass through the club in that era. Um, couple of, uh, a couple of texts and a couple of responses on the old IG live. Uh, somebody goes, Ryan Reddy, Chris St. Croix, Ilya Demidov. These names must be fake. They kind of, they kind of remind you of the, the names when you're playing NHL and you're going in franchise mode and now they're starting to make up players that get drafted. <laughs> That's what some of those names sound like. Dude, I had a, it's funny you mentioned that, Pat. There's a quick story. I was just playing NHL 20 the other day. And I swear to God, I got a guy in the draft whose name was Ed McMuffin. That's awesome. <laughs> First name Ed, last name McMuffin. I put it on my Snapchat before, and I would get alerts, and I got a trade alert from some other team, and whoever drafted Ed McMuffin had traded him. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how lazy are Who you guys getting? McMuffin? Ed McMuffin. Come on. How did you not pick him Ed up? McMuffin. I, didn't, I didn't see the potential in McMuffin that other teams did, but clearly that was my loss. <laughs> Uh, Mike writes at 960-960. Hosa was an absolute monster. Went to three consecutive finals. Finally won one with Chicago. Ended up winning two with the Blackhawks. And, yeah, he was an absolute monster when he was at his best. And this, I love the redraft. Should do this every single day. We thought about doing it every single day. But the problem is is that we don't want to run out of content. We want to make sure that we – this thing's this thing's going for another little while here. We don't need to uh, – yep. we don't need to – 
completely blow all of our resources uh, on two weeks of content. So we're stretching it out. So like one every two days is kind of what we're thinking about for these redrafts. And uh, today we did 1997. Good stuff, gentlemen. Uh, don't forget that tonight, 7 o'clock, it is our salute to our frontline workers. Wild Rose Brewery is on board with this once again. We are doing, uh, you know it, if you live downtown, you hear it, uh, every day, 7 o'clock, we get out in our balconies and we applaud or we bang pots and pans or whatever to uh, salute our frontline workers, our healthcare workers, truck drivers, grocery stores, restaurants, everybody who's out there and braving this thing right now. Uh, so get out there at 7 o'clock, do the same tonight, and Wild Rose has partnered up with us for a really cool opportunity. So we want to, over the next number of weeks, nominate a healthcare worker or an essential worker from Calgary to get a Wild Rose prize pack. If you want to do that, uh, text the word salute and the name of the nominee to 960-960. We'll compile all those and we'll start giving away these Wild Rose prize packs. Uh, Each week, one lucky person is going to be selected. All thanks to our good friends at Wild Rose Brewery. They wish you and yours health and safety during these challenging times. We support you, the hardworking characters of Calgary and the rest of Alberta. Later on this hour, Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, as we continue, we are well underway on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960, The Fan is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Gorgeous weather. Calgary, Alberta on this uh, day 41 of the sports apocalypse. I'm told it is uh, Tuesday, April 21st. Uh, someone else told me this is the 52nd day of yeah, March. It's March 52nd is, is uh, what today is. So um, March hasn't ended, so March 52nd. Looking forward very to March close. 53rd. It's a big day for all of us. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, it's going to be very different than today and yesterday and <laughs> The six weeks prior, whatever it is. We're flirting with 20 degrees in Calgary, Pat. 19 degrees? And 20 is a big number. We posted And Rob Gronkowski is a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's what, what really needs to be celebrated today. Well, I mean, all the above, really. I mean, you can enjoy 20 degrees and Gronkowski. What's the bigger ad for the Bucs, to be honest? Like, how old's Brady now? 43 40, or something? 42? Like, 42-year-old Brady is way further away from his prime than 31-year-old Rob Gronkowski, in my opinion. Is that crazy, yeah. or is that okay of an opinion? I don't think it's crazy. Soon to be 31-year-old, so he'll be he'll yeah. be 31 for uh, all of this next NFL season. Um, yeah, I think that... Um, I think we absolutely are talking about a guy who's closer to his prime, and we're also talking about a guy who hasn't played an entire year and and is completely completely healthy for the first time in ages so yeah i'm 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 leaning on the gronk side of things in terms of who is is closer to um being at their elite potential this is also part of the the brady effect and and i'm not suggesting that other future hall of famers are going to appear out of nowhere but for ages guys would go to new england for a chance to win and I don't see people doing that so much as following Tom Brady to Tampa for a chance to win. Now Uh, this has to sting. If you're a Patriots fan, this is clearly the end of an era for them. Now, does that mean they're not going to be competitive? Not at all. I think the, the the projected wins total, the over unders that you can bet on for NFL, they're exactly the same. I think they're both at nine and a half or something like that. So they're not going to be, if the books know anything, 
in Vegas, uh, that different in terms of their ability to collect wins. But uh, that was always a thing about that group was that guys would want to go there even on a one-year deal to build value or to try to get a ring. Uh, guys are probably looking at Tampa that way now. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what else happens here. Um, they have the draft also, still, right? Well, exactly, and and they've got um, now with Gronk coming in. What does that ha- What does that mean to OJ Howard, uh, who has been their tight end for the last couple? Or of Cameron Brait. And and Brait's been a nice little piece for them. So I, I'm I'm really curious to see how this all plays out and um, and how it all works out for the Bucks. I'll say this much: I have no idea what it's going to look like on the field. But I'm uh, significantly more excited about a Buck season than I have been in, oh, about a decade. Yeah, how can you not be excited? Even if you're not a Bucks fan, like, how can you not watch these guys? You're talking about the best pass-catching tight end we've seen in the last decade and the best one-two punch at wide receiver from last year in the NFL, all playing with the greatest quarterback of all time under a coach who's known as an offensive guru. Like, even if I hate the Bucs or am different, indifferent to the Bucs or don't even like the NFL that much, I've got to stop and watch these guys play, don't yeah. I? No doubt about it. That's the uh, big news of the day. The Bucks have traded for Rob Gronkowski. He'll reunite with Tom Brady in Tampa. Uh, next up, our NHL insider, Chris Johnston. Top of the hour, Blue Jays rewind. We're going back to June 2015 for a huge comeback win for the Jays over the Boston Red Sox. That's next. Chris Johnston, Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. All right, it's uh, 443. Reminder, Blue Jays comeback week is on. We'll head back to Fenway with an incredibly huge comeback for the Blue Jays against the Red Sox back in 2013. And later tonight, if you're up for a little... Pain and suffering, Game 7 between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Calgary Flames of the 2004 Stanley Cup Final. Okay, right now, it is our NHL insider Chris Johnston from earlier today. We started the conversation on exactly what's happening between players and owners with all this money missing from a season on pause and a different-looking business model moving forward. What are those discussions like and how could it affect escrow next year? Well, I can't say for sure when a new agreement might come, but I do think the significant aspect of the players delaying the decision on their last paycheck. Um, you know, initially it was going to be a paycheck paid on April 15th, then it was pushed back a week and now until May 15th. It does extend the window here for those talks to happen. And, and you know, the one thing I think James was, was correct on in his story is that, yes, obviously at a time like this, there's there's far more important things than what uh, relatively or, or pretty well-off well, well off athletes do with, with one paycheck. But, you know, where it's significant in the context of the sport is that, you know, as the players decide what to do, I think that they want to know what they're deciding. I mean, what does it mean if they do, say, choose to give back 50% of that paycheck or maybe even 100%? Uh, what will the owners give them in return? How does that fit in to the entire system? I think that there's a general sort of acknowledgement from both the league and the players end of things that, you know, the, the system that the, the league has played under doesn't contemplate a pandemic, doesn't contemplate the possibility of, you know, $1 billion, $1.2 billion, uh, being lost from the system, you know, in one sweep of events the way it, it you know, could happen here, depending on if they're able to, to resume and finish off the season at some point this summer. And so, you know, I, I think that the, the larger significance of that decision is that there are discussions going on uh, with the, the PA and the league about, you know, a way forward. Uh, you know, I, I don't get the feeling as though they're, they're necessarily going to come out and announce 
something on May 12th that that they've you know extended the CBA. But I do think that this decision uh, facing the players is is one of the, the first dominoes, I guess, where that that you know they they have to have some idea of what they're getting back in return before they make that decision. The decision on its own. Uh, is a difficult one for them them to reach. They need to know the wider context, and and I do think that, you know, here in the next few weeks, you're you're going to hear more about discussions going on with the league and the PA, and and trying to to build the best uh, system, I guess, to you know to to correct this and and to get through this this difficult time for the business of hockey. And so, if nothing changes, if we start a season, say in November. Um, what what happens? Are we just expect is massive escrow exactly what happens? Could the league theoretically start the cap way lower? I mean, if nothing happens and there's nothing new agreed on between the two parties, what are we looking at in the fall? Well, at minimum, the league and the PA have to agree on what the salary cap is. So, you know, there would there would have to be an agreement, uh, which which normally is a little is is relatively harmonious. It's, it's, there's a formula there. They're, they project where the earnings are. The players apply a percentage increase, so it's not necessarily something that involves a ton of discussion. But obviously, with with what's happened here, there would be discussion you know, whether they're setting it at the same level, which I think is likely. I don't think it's 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 very likely at all that we see it go down by any significant amount. At least not with without some other agreements in place, like you know, say the players you know taking a salary rollback or things like that. I think the reason we're going to see an agreement, frankly, is that there isn't a way to do this uh, where things just proceed as normal. Uh, you know, I think that that uh, the players potentially could, you know, not want to play in November if if it's just, you know, that they're only going to get X amount of their paycheck because escrow's so high. I think really the only way to continue playing, frankly, is is for the sides to reach some kind of agreement on a whole host of issues, and and that's probably the the biggest reason why. We are likely to see the CBA extended, but also, you know, a, a different level, I think, of, of cooperation than you've ever seen in our lifetime between the league and the players union because they both need each other. And, you know, if, if they can't agree on anything, I, I don't even know if there, there are games in, in something like this. Hmm. Uh, Chris Johnson, our NHL insider, joining us uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. CJ, where would you, uh, you know, we're seeing news of, the Korean Baseball League getting ready to start in a couple of weeks. We know the Bundesliga in Germany is getting close. Uh, Spanish soccer has uh, at least agreed upon a plan to return to practicing. But when it comes to the NHL, from who you've talked to, where is the optimism level right now? Well, it still seems pretty high, you know, among the league executives. I get the feeling that, that it's it's more mixed among the players and agents. I think they're just not totally clear on what it means and, and what it'll look like because, you know, they haven't been faced with one specific decision at this point. But, you know, I think especially because there, there's been so much optimism coming from the U.S. government and that, you know, there are these other leagues that are they're contemplating doing the same, that there's there's at least a fair amount of hope that there's going to be a way to make this happen. Now, you know, I don't see games in any scenario being played before you know the start of July, I think that, that that's probably the earliest time frame you're looking at now. So there's still you know quite a bit of time between then and now uh, for things to change, I guess, one way or another, and maybe that the the feeling of optimism or pessimism to to either grow or fall. Um, but you know, at this stage, I do think the league is is feeling pretty good about you know its its ability to to find a way to to have games without fans to to get in. A, enough of a regular season or straight to the playoffs and you know, all the things we've talked about 
in, in past hits. But you know, I, I do think that you know it, it, it is more than it's more than just hopeful thinking. I think that they really believe it's something they're going to be able to pull off. And um, you know, I don't get the sense they've taken any tangible steps more towards that. You know, I don't think there've been any real meaningful conversations with the PA about specifics at this stage. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it just just feels. Uh, hopeful uh, from from the NHL side of things that they're going to find a way to complete this season. What did the I know that you tweeted a little bit about this last week. That news about the NHL in conversation with New Hampshire, like is is there any legs to that? Oh, there's certainly legs to it. I mean, you know, it, it probably again doesn't go any deeper than the NHL making exploratory phone calls and saying, "Is this something you'd be open to?" And in this case. The state of New Hampshire, the governor was is open to the possibility of that, and you know you have you know a pretty good facility there in Manchester, New Hampshire, where you know they've had an American Hockey League team in the past, that the ECHL team plays there now, but you know certainly that's one of the the cities that we can add to to North Dakota, which we've talked about. I think Buffalo has has been tapped. You know I, I don't know what the other locations are, but there are other cities too that. I've reached out and have expressed an interest in, in you know, being added to the league's list. So, you know, I think again, the league's sort of getting the ducks in a row uh, for a time, maybe when they do have to make those decisions, when they get a green light that they can find a way to play, and, and you really have to dig down and decide uh, what it's going to look like. But you know, certainly the early indications are Manchester, uh, New Hampshire is is open to hosting the league. I think that there's a decent amount of places that that could be used to to house players and team staff in a city like that and you know especially if it remains an area that that you know the infection level isn't too high that there's not a a coronavirus concern on on the, the level there are in some other places that you know it is an option that that could become available to the league to, to actually stage some games in what can you tell us about this situation with uh, former high draft pick mikhail grigorenko and the columbus blue jackets because it looked like that was signed sealed and delivered and then not so much yeah, a bit of a misunderstanding there. I think ultimately the, the news of yesterday will be the news that uh, he is going to sign a one-year deal with the Blue Jackets, but, you know, nothing is binding. And, you know, my understanding of the situation is, you know, as often happens, uh, the Blue Jackets checked with the league before trying to register the contract. They were told to do so. And then after the fact, we're told that the contract, uh, you know, wasn't able to be registered at this time. Essentially, because Grigorenko played in the league before, in the NHL before, even though he's coming from Russia now and is out of contract with his Russian team, uh, he's viewed the same way Alex Petrangelo is uh, or Taylor Hall. You know, any of the guys that, that don't have a deal already for 2021, they can't sign another contract right now unless they're extending with their current team. And so, um, you know, that that was a bit of a snafu, I guess. But, you know, as I say, I, I don't get the, the feeling that this is, you know, this guy's going to test the market or that someone's going to step up and try to pay him $3 million instead of the $1.2 million he'd agreed on with the Blue Jackets. I think there was some good faith here that, you know, this is a good opportunity for Grigorenko, who, you know, I think could be a, a pretty savvy signing, actually, for Columbus. I mean, at the, the dollar figure they agreed to him, assuming that that is what, you know, the contract gets registered as either on July 1st or whenever the, the rules are adjusted to see what the new free agency date is. You know, there's there's very little risk for the Blue Jackets in that signing. They could send them to the AHL if it didn't work out without a cap penalty. And and I think more than likely, if you look at the production this guy's had the last two seasons, especially uh, playing over in Russia, you know that 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 looks like someone that could be a pretty good value signing for the Blue Jackets. 
saw the Habs sign a goaltender today. We saw the Maple Leafs get in on a Russian player last week. Is this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, like is this a normal thing that we see this at this time of year, or is, is there something going on that's leading to a little bit more interest in Russian players right now? Well, it's normal that teams would look to sign these guys. I think what's, what's changed this year is that uh, the KHL is instituting a salary cap for next season. And, you know, my understanding of it, and I know the ruble moves, but it's a cap that's somewhere around $20 million. So uh, some of the money that was available to top players in the past in Russia is is going to dry up. I mean, it's, it's not to say the stars won't still be signed, but, you know, you have a couple of the the top players in that league are already co- committed to coming to the NHL. Ilya Sorokin is a goaltender that's going to sign with the Islanders. He hasn't officially done so yet, but he's a draft pick by them. He's been the top goaltender over there. He's going to sign. Uh, Kirill Kaprizov is a Minnesota Wild uh, draft pick that's going to come and sign and play for the Wild next season. And I think, you know, some of these other guys you're hearing of, it's not a coincidence in as much as, you know, I think that the, the ability for them to command big salaries is being, um, you know, constricted with the, the, you know, the introduction of a salary cap. I mean, essentially the KHL the last number of years, uh, you know, it's, it's a league with more than 20 teams in it, but it really has been two or three powerhouse teams, St. Petersburg, Red Army and Moscow. And uh, that of, you know, that those two teams alone basically were the entire Russian Olympic team back in 2018. Um, and so the league is looking for a little bit more parity and obviously to try to create conditions. Opposite, you've heard this before, where some of the smaller market teams or uh, smaller funded teams, you know, have a, more of an ability to to compete. And you know, I think the result of that is that the top players are would would have been coming over here in droves probably if things were normal. You know, the one thing that's changed now is no one really knows when the next NHL season is going to start, and and all the guys we're talking about aren't eligible to return. You know, this summer, you know, should the league be able to finish off the season or the playoffs? You know, all these players aren't are not going to be able to be a part of that. And so if they're looking at a year starting next November, it's just a long time for them to have to wait uh, from not having played games from March, potentially all the way till November. But, um, you know, as a whole, I think what's changed is uh, there, there's more op- the sort of things are shifting. and There's more opportunity here in the NHL, at least in theory, for these guys. And you know, that's why we're, we're probably going to see more come over than I've already just signed here in the last week or so. What's your gut on the future of Dustin Bufflin now that he is officially no longer a member of the Winnipeg Jets? I'd be really surprised if he played again. You know, I mean, the thing we shouldn't overlook in this whole scenario is that that the Jets offered to trade him two separate times during last season, if that was something that interested him. And, And at the time, he and his representative indicated that he wasn't. You know, he did have ankle surgery last fall and had he rehabbed himself and got back to a point where he was deemed healthy, you know, he would have been in a position to, to collect what was remaining on his contract. And instead uh, what's happened here is he ended up walking away from $14 million, uh, you know, for this year and, and what was owed to him next season from Winnipeg, you know, everything about the, the scenario around this kind of suggests he won't play again, but no one can say for sure. I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's always been a player that's been a little bit of a, uh, enigma to, to outsiders. You know, it's been tough to understand him. He hasn't always been forthcoming with the media and he's always sort of danced to his own drummer. So, you know, I can't rule out a hundred percent that the team won't put something in front of him here in the future um, to that, that might entice him to try and play. I mean, certainly I think he can play. If you look at his last full season with the jets, 
you know, last year around this time, he was playing in the first round for them against St. Louis. He played more than 26 minutes a night uh, in that series and, and produced a lot of points and, and was an effective player. And, and even at an advanced age, even, you know, as someone who's never been trimmed by professional athlete standards, you know, I think that he's got a very unique skill set and, and could, could be an effective player in the league. I just get the feeling here that, uh, that, that the light's gone out on him, probably the combination of the, the beating he's taken over the years, some of the injuries he's been through here recently and just, you know, getting on with age and having earned a lot of money at this point in his career, that, that the combination of those factors have kind of taken away mm-hmm. his desire to do everything he needs to do to, to be an NHL player. And as I say, I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if he was back, but you have to never say never, especially with a personality like Dustin Bufflin. Chris Johnston's with us. He's our NHL insider, joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. CJ, uh, we, we've talked about how curious an offseason will look like here for players, and we don't know when it will begin, when it will end, where it overlaps with other leagues. But what about this incredibly high-profile uh, free agent class of coaches with LaViolette, Gallant, uh, clearly Mike Babcock, amongst others that are out there and available, and a lot of interims around the league? Yeah, it's such a strange situation. You know, I, I saw the report that the Glant started talking to the Devils. Uh, I don't think a lot of that's gone on right now, even though, you know, New Jersey probably is, is in a little bit more of wrapping up last season, even without knowing what's going to happen just because of where they were in the standings. And it makes sense for them if they can to, to try to jump ahead and, you know, interview some of these candidates. My, my sense is that, you know, at this point, Mike Babcock doesn't, uh, have much interest in in resuming his coaching career at this stage. You know, I'll put him in the never say never, but you know, I think that he's had some opportunities maybe already that you know things he could have done that he's elected not to do. And and so you know, I don't know where he factors into this summer, but but certainly guys like Laviolette and Glant uh, are are anxious to coach, and I would expect somehow, some way, when the dust settles, you know, we'll be behind NHL benches uh, by the start of the next season. It's just kind of been largely put on hold by this other than, than Glant having some discussions virtually with the, the Devils and, and you know them starting to look at what they might do with Alain Nezardine who finished the year as an interim coach who I believe is among the candidates for them. But you know this was going to be a strange year anyway. We saw so many in-season coaching changes. There's, there's four or five guys that still carried interim tags. And frankly, I think some of those decisions would be secured on how the playoffs went. And, and so if there aren't a playoffs and if things are over here, I think that'll muddy the waters a little bit, but um, you know, you, you have some pretty high profile coaches and with, with a lot of unsettled situations, I'd say even more than normal uh, at this point, uh, you know, when the season was paused, uh, I think it's very likely you're going to see all those guys find their way to a bench. It's probably just not going to be until there's some clarity on, on what's to come here. Yeah, just uh, more murkiness to be sure. And Boudreaux, another name in there that we didn't mention that certainly deserves to be in the mix. He wants to coach too. He's, he's, yeah. That guy was dying to coach the day after he got fired. So, <laughs> Okay, uh, anything else to update us from the Johnson household on surviving the pandemic? I know you were up in arms a couple of weeks ago with uh, some local politicians and their bylaws. Any update there for us? No, I've I've calmed down. I've, I'm staying out of municipal politics. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been isolating mostly in place. I still get out for the odd jog here and there, but uh, you know, I didn't. That was not a pleasant foray into the the public sphere. So I'm just trying to do what I'm told. And honestly, we had snow about four different times today, which is 
highly unusual here April 21st, so there's not much desire to be outside right now as it is. All right, well, we're, we're flirting with 20 here after uh, ages. We haven't had 20 degrees since October, I believe. So uh, we've taken the good weather, and we're happy to do so. We'll chat again uh, later on. Right on, boys. Have a good one. It's Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. That'll do it for the show. Next up, Blue Jays Rewind, another comeback week classic. Jays Red Sox from June 12th, 2015. Heck of a seventh inning you're about to uh, listen to that's coming your way around the corner. Following that, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final between the Tampa Bay Lightning and Calgary Flames from 2004. All of our guests up right now at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Chris Johnston, Jordan Leopold, a great chat, and potential number one overall pick in next week's CFL draft. Jordan Williams, all up online for you right now. For Logan Gordon and Ryan Pinder, my name is Pat Steinberg. We'll talk to you tomorrow. It's been Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.